0: <laughs> and welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss and get down on today in the world of sports. Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo e Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa. Namaste. Shalom. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Bonjour. Bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. I hope everything is going great in your life, fam. I hope everything is going fantastic. I hope everything is going wonderfully. Please give my hellos. Please give my special dedications to your husband, to your wife, to your children, to your kids, to your other family members, to your boyfriend, to your girlfriend, to your partner. Just give them my what's up, give them my love, give them my thank you very much and all of those good things. I hope that you're doing everything that needs to be done to move this country, to move this world, to move this place, to move your community, to move your block in a positive direction. Your household moving in a positive direction, a learning direction, a understanding direction, an intelligent direction. And man, when you leave your space, when you leave your home, when you leave your abode, hey, come on now. When you go out there and you meet the other person and you meet somebody, greet them of warmth intelligence, understanding, love, harmony, unity. Let's do that, especially if you're under my age, especially if you're from the generations of generations of generations of generations who are going to be taking this world and taking this planet in a direction that you're going to decide. Let's see if we can do that in a positive, loving, unified way. When I'm long gone, when you're long gone, when your mom's long gone, when your family member's long gone, your kids, your grandkids, who's ever listening to this, whoever you're in charge of, come on, man, let's see what they can do to move this in the right direction. And it's our responsibility to make sure that the younger generation, the 16 and under, the 18 and under, those who are still learning, those who aren't even born yet in terms of moving this country, being responsible for moving this country, man, give them, teach them the lessons right now to uh, do it in a loving, peaceful way harmonious way regardless of race creed color political affiliation religious background whatever let's see if we can do that can we you think we can do that huh you 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 let's see if we can do that all right let's get this thing started huh let's get this ball to moving the super bowl the super bowl the super bowl here in the racist selfish United States of America. The game is over. The most important game sporting event, maybe the most important and you know, impactful event is in the world of sports is now over. Outside of the World Cup. It's now over. The NFL season, at least on the field, is over. And the Tampa Tom Bay Buccaneers are the 2020 world champions. Kansas City, man, I'm sorry, man, but let me tell you something. Tampa Bay beat up discombobulated, dismantled, discouraged, basically punked. the Kansas City no longer Super Bowl champions, 31 to 9. I don't know what to call them. What do, th- what do you think I should call Kansas City now that they're no longer? I was about to call them the defending champions if they would have uh, won it. I would have called them the two-time defending champions if they would have won it, but I'm not going to be calling them by their nickname because according to those in the Native American community, they find that offensive. So, I am not going to be sitting here talking about how angry I get at those who don't listen and respect the grievances of my community when we say, you know, we really shouldn't go in that direction with that because, you know, the black community gets pissed off about that and it's really offensive and it's really uh, ignorant for people to say that. And then those across the track sit there and be, ah, come on, give me a break. No big deal. What are you talking about? the other. I can't. On one hand, sit there and shake my finger at you people and go, no, 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 no. And then on the other hand, I do the same thing to someone from outside of my community. So I don't know what the estimation is. I don't know what the percentage is, but I'm guessing that the majority of Native Americans find the nickname of the Kansas City football team, especially, um, you know, those of the Native American community find that offensive. So guess what? I'm not going to be calling Kansas City the football team that nickname anymore. I can call them the used-to-be champions, the no-longer-Super Bowl champions. I can just call them the Kansas City football teams, but uh, I uh, I can't call them the uh, defending champions anymore because they lost 31-9. to So the easy storylines of this game, hey man, Tom Brady, Tom Brady, Tom Brady, Tom Brady, Tom Brady, won his fifth MVP, seventh Super Bowl championship, went 21-29 pedestrian. 201 yards, pedestrian, three touchdowns and no interceptions, very good. Game management, superb. Brady's performance, what do you think, man? I mean, more like... If you're going to go just on statistics alone, it was more like his first and his sixth championship. His first championship coming against the St. Louis Rams. Yes, I understand that he led the Patriots to the position to kick a field goal, the opportunity for Adam Vinatieri to kick a field goal, to have... New England win the football game, but as far as his as his stats are concerned, and the pecking order in terms of his impact on New England winning their first Super Bowl championship, Tom Brady's first Super Bowl championship, Bill Belichick's first Super Bowl championship as a head coach, his numbers, his stats were pedestrian. And in the game against the Los Angeles Rams, the game that New England won 13-3, again, wasn't... Off the charts. It wasn't unbelievable. It wasn't just add to the legend. It wasn't just, you know, super Tom Brady coming to the rescue. Against uh, St. Louis in Super Bowl thirty six. when we're speaking about Brady's performance statistical-wise and where does it measure in his latest Super Bowl championship against the Rams in the first one, 16-27, 145 yards, one touchdown. Eh, not bad. All right. Cool. Fine. They're not winning that game without... The defense, but again, Brady put them in the position to win the game. So pretty good. And then against the Rams in Super Bowl 53, 21-35, 262 yards. One interception, no touchdown. Eh, All right. All right, fine. So I guess you can call. And most importantly, the Patriots won those games. So if you're trying to grade Brady's performance on Sunday, his first championship as a uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneer at the age of 43, so if you're looking and saying, where does his performance against the uh, against the Kansas City no longer champions on, on Sunday, where does that rank amongst the wins as far as the performances are concerned? I would say it was a uh, Super Bowl thirty six, Super Bowl fifty three range. He was good, but he wasn't great. He was efficient, but he wasn't dominant. Wasn't this you know didn't have to do anything remarkable like he did in Super Bowl forty one where. As you mentioned, as I mentioned, down 28 to three to Atlanta in the third quarter, came back and won his fifth Super Bowl in overtime. Threw 62 passes, completing 43 of them for 466 yards, two scores on the way to the MVP honors. He didn't need to do that. He didn't put up the statistical type of performance like he did in Super Bowl 39 against the Seattle Seahawks. 2014, Seattle losing 28-24, Malcolm Butler being the hero of the game. But in that game against the Legion of Boom, uh. You know, right on the cusp of being one of the great defenses in the last 15, 20 years. He passed for 328 yards and four touchdowns. So it was it was good. It was solid. But again, he didn't have to be the way the defense played, the way Byron Leftwich was calling the game, the way that the defense was acting and, and responding, the way that the offense uh, was humming on offense or offense was humming. Tom Brady didn't have to go ball to the wall. Tom Brady didn't have to get into a shootout with Patrick Mahomes. Tom Brady didn't have to. I'll uh, throw forty forty five passes in this game. He wasn't the main reason. He wasn't the only reason why the Buccaneers won their won their second championship Super Bowl championship in their franchise. So, I mean, what does this win mean for Brady's legacy? I mean, where, where 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 are we going here? He's won more Super Bowl titles than any NFL franchise. Pittsburgh Steelers, New England Patriots have won six. Oh yeah, New England Patriots won six Super Bowls. Brady's won seven. Where did he win six of them? Hmm, coincidence, I think not. Brady's also made history with his fifth MVP award, which, lazy, I guess I would question those who um, voted for the MVP. But in winning the fifth MVP award, becoming the only player with five, Joe Montana is second with three, so he's just putting a little distance between first and second place. But I thought the real MVP of the game if it could have been given to anybody, the co MVPs of the game were Todd Bowles and Byron Leftwich. Um, both game plans that were called and the game plan that was executed by both the offense and the defense was beyond sensational. I mean, it was a matter of, you know, we talk about athletes and we say, man, those guys are in their zone. You know, you. You watch basketball games and you see a guy shooting from all over the place and he just can't miss. And you think about Isaiah Thomas scoring 20-something points in the third quarter, a lot of them on a twisted ankle. You talk about uh, Sleepy Floyd back in the day going for 28 points in the fourth quarter against the Los Angeles Lakers. You you think about these, these, these unbelievable basketball games, these scoring barrages throughout history and big-time games and big-time performances. And you say, wow. That guy was in the zone. The shots that that guy was hitting, he was in the zone. Well, it can also come to play calling. And Todd Bowles and Byron Lethwich, they were in the zone. I mean, they were unfucking believable. And then to translate the calls and to translate what they were doing to the players and have the players be so in sync with the calls that the uh, coordinators, the defensive coordinator and the offensive coordinator were, were calling, sensational sensational i don't know and that's why you say brady uh this that the other but someone along that defense for tampa should have been the should have been the mvp but then again you take a look at it i mean what stood out who stood out no one came up with three interceptions like rod martin martin did with the oakland raiders when they played the uh, philadelphia eagles uh you know there wasn't a situation where the cornerback intercepted two passes like larry brown did for the Cowboys against the Pittsburgh Steelers. And there wasn't one singular performance in terms of what could be standing out among anybody else on defense that uh, would have said, wow, that was unbelievable. And the fact that Brady threw three touchdown passes right there. Statistically, it just popped out that Brady was the MVP. Again, don't think he was, but I mean, I think he came within the top seven, (laughs) I guess. So speaking about Tampa Bay on offense, I said over and over and over again, let me bring this back a little bit here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, with your host Wendell Wallace. I, I've said this all year. And I said this even going into the season when Brady first became a Buccaneer. I said at the age that he's going to be at, there's going to be, there, there has been some decline. I mean, just like LeBron James, you could be, the, the Tom Brady could still be around the LeBron James syndrome. Where everybody's sitting there talking about, oh my goodness, in the 17th, 18th year, LeBron is still the best player. He hasn't aged. His game hasn't changed. No, his game has changed. LeBron has just gotten smarter as a basketball player. His skills have become more sharper because his physical attributes are not what it was when he was playing for Miami or when he was first starting out the second time in his stint with the Cleveland Cavaliers, or when he first came into the league. At the age of 35, he's not going to have the same physical attributes that he had when he was 31 or 28 or 25. So he has to adjust by using his intelligence, his genius, as a basketball player and, and honing his skills. Now he's got a three-point shot that's unbelievable. Now he's got that spin move off the uh, drive, mainly from his left to the right to uh, bank it in. He's gotten stronger. He's gotten bulkier. He's he's thickened up instead of uh, leaning out which allows him to score on contact and and other type of things. He's become smarter. So LeBron has adjusted his game as his physical skills have diminished. And his physical skills were so otherworldly that now that they're coming back down, he's still physically uh dominant, just not as dominant as he was. Well, that's the same thing with Tom Brady. Tom Brady's not the same quarterback as he was when he was 38 years old, when he was 35 years old, when he was 32 years old, when he was 27 years old. He doesn't have the physical attributes that he does now that he has back then, but Tom Brady, because of his knowledge, Tom Brady, because of his dedication, Tom Brady, because of his work ethic, Tom Brady, because of his attention to detail, and Tom Brady, because of his experience as a quarterback, being at the highest level for as long as he's been, has adjusted his game to say, you know what, I don't need to be the Tom Brady to have the physical skills that I once had in 2007 and 2011 and 2014 for me to still be a highly effective quarterback. And I said that when Brady came to the Buccaneers, because of the talent that was surrounding him, that for this first year, for this first year, this is the best you're going to see of Tom Brady. This is the best you're going to get of Tom Brady. Moving this way too early, of course, to be talking about who's going to be doing what and who's going to be winning how and who's going to be the favorites and who's going to be back in the Super Bowl next season. It's way too early to be thinking about that. Damn, the season just ended less than uh, 146 hours ago. And to top it off, we don't even know what's going to be happening with this virus and the vaccine and everything else. So it's way too early to be plotting and discussing, at least for me as a podcaster, teams that are going to be you know, in this position about 354 days later. If we're even still around, if I'm still around, if you're still around, if this planet is still around at that time. So, but I did say that Brady coming to the Buccaneers was going to be, you, you get him now, you do everything that you can now, because this is not going to be a situation where Tom Brady, of 45, 46, 47 years old is still going to be that guy that he was, that he was 43. Obviously father time is eventually going to get you, but, Being all that said, because of those things, Tom Brady is going to have to rely on a balanced offense to win football games. The Tom Brady that was allowed to take chicken shit and turn it into chicken salad at the skill positions, no offense to Julian Elliman and Danny Amendola and those other guys, but the ability for Tom Brady to put an offense on his back and lead them to a championship, that's no longer happening despite him winning the MVP in the Super Bowl, despite the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with him as a quarterback winning the Super Bowl, that's still not going to be the case. You still cannot rely. You still cannot put the same responsibilities today on Tom Brady as you do with Aaron Rodgers, as you do with Russell Wilson, as you do with Deshaun Watson, as you do with Patrick Mahomes, as you do with uh, Kyler Murray, as you do with Josh Allen. It's just not going to happen for... Tampa Bay on offense, to be at a point where they were on Sunday holding the Vince Lombardi trophy, you have to have some type of balance. And it was clear in the games that the Buccaneers lost this season and the games that they won, but one of the things that stood out more than others in terms of offensive efficiency is concerned is the balance. The times when they lost, it skewed way too much and the Tom Brady throwing the ball all over the yard. And the times that they won, it was clear that when the run pass ratio was closer to 50-50 or when the pass run ratio was closer to 50-50 or 52-48 or 53-47, that, that's when the Buccaneers were at their best as an offense. So against Kansas City in the Super Bowl, Tampa Bay ran the ball 33 times for 145 yards. They threw the ball 29 times for 195 yards. Balance, balance. And as many experts who were following the Buccaneers all season uh, pointed out that as the season went along, Leftwich and Bruce Arians and Tom Brady, they all came to the understanding in terms of how much of the Tampa Bay philosophy are we going to have Tom Brady execute? And how much of the New England offense, which Brady is, you know, 20 years. I mean, come on. How much of that are we going to uh, implement into our offense? And we got to have that nice blend of the old offense, of the offensive philosophy that Bruce Arian has, and the offense that Tom Brady is the most comfortable with. And also fits his physical skill sets at this time. No risk it, no biscuit. Jameis Winston, he's not the quarterback that Tom Brady is, never will be. But I tell you one thing, arm strength uh, doesn't fit. Arm strength, when you're speaking about Winston and Brady, arm strength alone fits Bruce Arian's systems better. So since Tom Brady doesn't have a Jameis Winston-type arm, we're going to have to kind of blend in, mold in the two offensive philosophies to see what we've got. So moving on, throughout the season, Tampa Bay Um, put in more play action passes and and other things like that. And we saw what happened. It was effective. And you saw throughout this run through the playoffs when the Buccaneers beat Washington and the New Orleans Saints and the Green Bay Packers. And then finally the Kansas City football team that you saw an offense that wasn't relying on Tom Brady chucking the ball 45 to 50 times all over the field and having the running game only muster, 10, 12, 15 rush attempts per game. So, mentioned before, 33 times in the Super Bowl, they ran the ball, 29 times they passed the ball. On um, play-action passes, Brady was 10 of 13 for 135 yards and three touchdowns. Bingo, bongo. Right there. Right there. All three of Brady's touchdown passes came off of play-action passes. And the first, I remember the, I don't know what the first, the first um, TD um, pass to Gronkowski that whole sequence, that whole drive that Byron Leftwich put together, fantastic. And it set them up so beautifully because they were running the ball so beautifully. The passes, the short, the, the, the short passes, very rarely did Brady have to throw the ball down the field. I mean, just the way that the offense was in sync. Set up the touchdown pass to a Gronkowski off the play action where he came across, caught the touchdown and went in. Beautiful, man. It was beautiful. It was like, yeah, Leftwich is on a roll, man. Leftwich is on fire. And he continued it. So as I mentioned before, all three of Brady's touchdown passes came off of play-action passes. And Brady used play-face on 43% of his dropbacks, which is the highest rate in a game in the the, uh, era since 2016. And only two of Brady's 29 pass attempts targeted a receiver in a tight window. Antonio Brown had one catch. Rob Gronkowski had one catch, and if you take a look at it, the most feared receivers of the game, Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, and the receivers for Tampa Bay as a whole, Evans, Godwin, Antonio Brown, and Tyler Johnson, they caught a combined eight passes for 63 yards. And if you take out Antonio Brown, five catches for a pedestrian 22 yards, what are we talking about here? We're talking about, what, uh, three catches for 41 yards? That's uh, That just shows you, again, the type of control that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers had in this game. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The mismatch on the offensive line, I, I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. I don't care. Y'all you, you can laugh at me and, and 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 joke on me and joke on me, clown on me. I don't care. I said that the uh, Kansas City Defending champions were going to win the game. I thought that the offensive firepower was too much for Tampa Bay to handle. And I thought that Kansas City can score in many different ways. They can get on you deep. They can get on you short. Uh, The running game throughout the playoffs, I thought Kansas City, it was adequate enough to hold the rushing defenders at bay long enough for Mahomes to take his shots. And I thought anybody with Patrick Mahomes, uh, (laughs) you know, I thought they – I mean, when you have a guy who's won, I don't know, like, you know, 25 of their last 26 games in which he started, tell me a reason why they're only going to score nine points and not score a touchdown. But one thing I didn't take into account. should up. I mentioned it, but I was like, yeah, you know, that might be a problem. But, again, with Patrick Mahomes and the offense and this, that, and the other, you know, the skills, the, um, Tyree Kill and this, that, and the other, yeah, you know, whatever. I didn't give enough respect to the offensive Woes on the offensive line for Kansas City was not taken into enough consideration to say, hey man, this could be, this could be big. This could be huge. Tampa Bay absolutely, positively, undeniably destroyed Kansas City along the offensive line. Destroyed them. I can't think of another fo- another Super Bowl. Can you? Can you? How about you? I can't think of any other Super Bowl where I saw a quarterback run for his life as much as Patrick Mahomes. And I watched the 2001 Baltimore Ravens. I watched the 85 Bears. I watched the Lawrence uh, Lawrence, um, uh, Lawrence Taylor New York Giants. I have watched a whole lot of really good defensive football throughout my time watching the game of football and the Super Bowl. I've never seen, and I've seen some beatdowns. We've all seen some beatdowns. The performance that Seattle put on Denver, Peyton Manning, in the Super Bowl at New York City. I mean, there's been some pretty dominant defensive uh, performances in Super Bowls. I I have never seen four defensive linemen dismantle, emasculate, pound, destroy, whatever you want to call it, another offensive line. Patrick Mahomes, you know, it's, it's silly, and I know people are gonna roll their eyes, and it's gonna be, we're going, 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 real bullshit on the hyperbole, aren't we today, Wendell? But no, man, I, I feel this, I really believe this. Patrick Mahomes might have played his most impressive game of his life, despite not, despite, despite not scoring a touchdown and losing. Yes, that sounds idiotic. Yes, that sounds stupid, uh, un- un- unbelievably stupid. 26 of 49 passing, 270 yards, two interceptions, sacked three times, got hit twice more. The team only scored nine points, and they got blown out 31 to nine. And your stupid ass is talking about that's the most impressive performance that you've seen by Patrick Mahomes. What the fuck have you been drinking, Wendell? That's the dumbest. That's the dumbest shit I think I've ever heard. Again, think about it this way, and remember all the times that he was getting pressured all of the crazy things he had to do just to get a pass off. Is there any other quarterback that you can think of that could have done the things that Patrick Mahomes did? And again, they scored nine points. Though so this is not something like, you know, Patrick Mahomes put up 27 points or some nonsense like that. But still, the way that offensive line was getting destroyed, you take out Patrick Mahomes, You put in MVP of Super Bowl 55, Tom Brady, back there. Does does, um, Kansas City win? Fuck no. Does Tom Brady even finish the game? Possibly. Put any other quarterback in the history of the game under that center, under the center for that offensive line for Kansas City? Tell me. Who who, who could have pulled that shit out? Tell me, who could have done better? Tell me, who could have worked much better than Patrick Mahomes did? I don't give a fuck who you put in there. John Elway, Steve Young, Randall Cunningham, Joe Montana, Mark Malone, Terry Bradshaw, Johnny Unitas. I don't give a fuck. Name them all. Name them all of quarterbacks who played in the history of this league. And tell me one player who would have been like, oh, yeah, come on, Wendell. I mean, shit, if you would have put 1983 Joe Montana back there under center, he would have found a way. He would have done this. He would have lived. Steve Young, Randall Cunningham, Mike, oh, yeah, those guys, with their speed, their athleticism, their smarts, this, that, and the other, Joe Montana, four-time MVPs, I mean, four-time Super Bowl champ, oh, yeah, he would have been able to figure it out. He would have been able to avoid the rush. He, rush, he would have been able to uh complete some passes for touchdowns. Oh, this, that, and the other. Bullshit, bullshit. Bullshit on that one. Patrick Mahomes was un-fucking-believable. A guy who was pressured um, 29 of 56 of his drop-back passes. 29 of his 56. That's the most of any quarterback in Super Bowl history. You know in 30 drop-back passes, you know how many times Brady was pressured? Four, which is the lowest of his Super Bowl career. Have Brady drop back 56 times and tell him that, guess what? There's going to be pressure coming up on you 29 times and see how well Tom Brady does. This is from ESPN Stats and Information. Brady was pressured on less than 10%, 9.5% of his dropbacks in the first half. Mahomes was pressured 57% of the times. You tell me me what quarterback is going to... uh, is going to thrive under those conditions. You tell me what quarterback with that offensive line on Sunday for Kansas City would have done a better job. What Patrick Mahomes did was fucking unbelievable. Unbelievable. He'll have games where he'll throw for more yards and they'll win and they'll do that and the other. And if you're a Kansas City fan, I'm quite sure throughout his career, there'll be championships and Super Bowls and all inspiring plays and Highlight real type moments that people 50 years from now will be watching and be ooing and awing, and there'll be uh, throws that are going to be transcendent, and games are going to be transcendent, and legendary, all those things in Patrick Mahomes' career. I am very confident in that. But one of the more underrated performances when everything is all said and done. And people are arguing, his generation of fans and the generation after his is going to be arguing about, no, Patrick Mahomes is the greatest quarterback of all time, not Tom Brady or not Joe Montana or not Roger Staubach. All of the things. When the time comes, what's going to be lost in the shuffle? What's going to be lost in the argument? Or the argument is going to be skewed to, yeah, well, you know, I mean, Tom Brady is better than Patrick Mahomes because, if you remember, Super Bowl 55, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 31 to 9, 8 to 43-year-old Tom Brady, 5th MVP, all of those type of things. That will be the, the storyline. That will be the leading song on the album. But shit, on the B side, it's like, uh-uh, go back and watch that game and see how many times Mahomes escaped pressure or Mahomes gave his receivers a chance. Take a look at all that, and then you try to tell me if the roles were reversed that Brady or anybody else playing quarterback in the history of the National Football League could have done better. So, yeah, the game plan by Todd Bowles has to be one of the greatest defensive game plans in Super Bowl history. Man, go ahead, and I'm telling you right now, if I'm Todd Bowles, save that game plan. Save it. If you don't need the money, leave it for your children. Or leave it for your grandkids. Because... I'm quite sure, hopefully, that the Hall of Fame should be coming for that for that game plan. Bill Belichick's uh, uh, game plan is in the Hall of Fame. The game plan that Bill Belichick had that the defense had as the defensive coordinator against the Buffalo Bills when the Giants won. Jeff Hostetler starting at quarterback. I forgot. Whitney Houston sang the national anthem. Gulf War, early '90s. I I forgot exactly which one, but. Um, I can't think of a scheme, game plan, whatever, other than that one that can rival what Todd Bowles put down on Sunday. So, hey, man, save that game plan. Save that sheet. Save that information. Because maybe not now, but one of your heirs is going to be talking about, oh, yeah, you want to put this in the Hall of Fame? What's your price? What is your price? Because that's going to be a valuable commodity, hopefully in the next years or decades coming in the future. So, you take a look at the uh, pressure, and you take a look at this pressure as you're listening to Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, that the um, you take a look at Mahomes and the pressure. This is according to next-gen stats. Mahomes ran for a total of 497 yards before his passes sacks were uh, in, in the Super Bowl. The man ran for almost five. Hundred yards. <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> Here, here's a here's a spoiler alert. That's the most pre thrown pre snap uh, three uh, pre uh, sack yards run by a quarterback in any game this season. Yeah, no shit. Kansas City used five man protection on 92% of a drop packs, 48 of 52 times, and they still couldn't keep JPP and Indama consumed. And uh, Shaquille, Griffin off, Shaquille Barrett off his ass. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. The Buccaneers forced 10 tight throw, uh, tight window throws. Tied for Patrick Mahomes most in the game over his four-year career. And all, and all those 10 tight window throws, he was one of 10 for five yards and two interceptions. Levante David, who, you know what? Fuck it. He should have won the MVP. Levante David, James Dean, Jam- excuse me, Jamel Dean, Mike Edwards, uh, they all forced multiple tight window targets and throws from Mahomes. So, you know, when people are talking about, oh, you know, no big fucking deal, you know, a lot of the uh, reasons why Mahomes was running around and this, that, and the other was because he was holding on to the ball too long because he was trying to uh, make things happen and blah, 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 and this, that, and the other. Well, you know, the Buccaneers blitzed on just 9.6% of the dropbacks which is the lowest rate by a Bulls-led defense over the last five seasons, right? So this wasn't a situation where the Buccaneers were were uh, scheming pressure from blitzing linebackers or anything like that. And as the game started to get out of reach because the offensive line for Tampa Bay was just as dominant against the Kansas City defensive line, that, yeah, Mahomes had to make something happen. Mahomes had to take chances. So yeah, because of that and the fact that they weren't throwing or they weren't rushing the ball at all, I believe for the game Kansas City only rushed 17 times. That yeah. Yeah, Mahomes had to hold on to the ball a little bit longer to make things happen. So yeah. Was some of that on Mahomes in terms of the pressures and everything like that because he was holding on to the ball too long? Yeah, maybe. But don't let that uh, excuse things. Don't don't let that uh fool you. The offensive line for Kansas City in that game was terrible. And the defense for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the play calling by Todd Bowles and the game plan by defensive defensive coordinator Todd Bowles, off the charts, fantastic. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going down today in the world of sports. Ah, yeah. Ah, yeah. I'm ready, man. I am ready. You know, here's a little tip for you, for those who enjoy enjoy music as much as I do. You know, they say that uh, singing, you know, does a lot to, you know, increase your mood or to better your mood and to do all these things, make the body better, and all those type of things. So I'm telling you, before I do my podcast, I always, for about 15 minutes, I just sing. That's all I do. I just I just sit there and I sing. Play a little Otis Redding, play some Four Tops, play a little Anita Baker, play a little Aretha Franklin, whatever I can get my hands on them, depending upon what type of mood I'm in. Sometimes I'll put on a little uh, Eric B. and Rod a little bit of uh, KRS-One, you know, just, just anything. To get myself going. And it's true. At least for me. I don't i don't know. I don't, you know. But for me, it's true. I just get in there and I just rap and I just sing and I just do whatever. Do a little freestyle. And I'm roaring ready to go, man. And one thing I tell you, man, I've been blessed. I've been blessed. So much of my life is unbelievable. You know what I'm saying? I'm 51 years old. I'm relatively healthy. I got my sight. I'm able to walk. I'm able to breathe. I'm able to talk. I'm able to think. I'm able to do what I want to do. I mean, even though I'm a fat ass, I, there's no physical limitations of what I can't do. I have the physical ability to get into shape. So I thank God for that. You know, I've been blessed with two wonderful parents. I'm extremely good looking, wonderful friends, living, you know, just, I've just so, so many blessings to count that, you know, to ask for any more would be incredibly greedy. You know what I'm saying? But boy, if I get an opportunity to uh, go to heaven, if one exists, I believe it does. But when I uh, get up to heaven and if I can make an appointment to see the almighty creator, I would, first of all, thank him so much for the blessings and the gifts that he gave me throughout my existence in this form. But I would just be like, man, you know what? Don't take away my parents. Don't take away my God daughter. Don't take away my friends and my family and all that type of stuff. You know, maybe you could instead of having me be six four, you know, maybe being five eleven. No, maybe if instead of having like movie star, unbelievably sex symbol type good looks, that I could just be average looking. I thank my mom and dad for those these looks. But I'm telling you, I would just trade in a little bit of that if I could sing. Oh, if I could sing just a little bit. I'm not saying having the voice of Levi Stubbs or Luther Vandross or shit, Steve Perry. I'm not talking about some shit like that. Just give him, if you just would have given me the ability to hold the tune, man. Woo, Lord have mercy. I guess the Lord would have been like, you know how fucking annoying you would have been if I gave you the ability to sing? Because you're punk casting of course, here's the Lord, you know, cursing like he's doing. Because your ass would have been walking around all over the, all over the earth that I created singing and annoying the fuck out of people. Believe me, man, if I have to sing, that's exactly what I do. Good morning, darling, you know I love you so much. Wake up, the kid, because we gotta go to school. Come on, y'all, don't be no fool. You gotta be cool, you gotta go to school. Put on your backpack and see y'all later. I mean, I've, everything I do. Could you imagine me being a telemarketer? Hello, good morning, this is Mr. Smith. I've got a prize for you, all you gotta do which is sign up for this timeshare hello hello Oh shit he hung up on me and he called me a rotten bastard but i don't care and i don't care on to the next call i mean that would have been that would have been me man i don't know if i ever would have talked if i had the ability to sing that's how much i enjoy singing damn bitch what the hell you doing you almost cut me off the speed limit is 55. Why the hell are you doing 40 And damn these motherfuckers cannot drive. I don't know how I'm keeping alive. i got to strive. i got to do better. Going to work to get the cheddar. Come on, bitch. It's the green light. I'll move that fucking car. I mean, that's what, it would have been just like that, man, the entire time. So, yeah, man, I tell you, I just, you know, I've actually tried to sing. When I've been in a relationship, I've actually tried to sing to females before because, you know, I thought that would have been cool. Baby, I need your loving. Got to have all your loving. Baby, I need your loving. For those who can even sing a little bit, I'm telling you, the girls appreciate a guy who can try to sing a little bit for them. 'em. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, if they're digging you, and put in the name instead of baby, darling, sweetheart, honey bun, whatever, man, just add, take that out, put in the name. Raina, I need your loving. Felisa, gotta have all your loving. Marcy, I need your loving. Stephanie, gotta have your loving. Now, if you're a player, I mean, I'll just give you different names to throw in there. You know, for me, Raina means queen, so I always throw it in there. But, I mean, if you're a player, you know, you want to make sure that you don't, you know, you want to make sure that you're only singing the one. You're only naming the one name when you're singing the song. You know? I love you, Araceli. You're so sweet to me, Lorraine. Ooh, I mean, I'm. <laughs> I mean, Araceli. Shit. I'm telling you, you want to you know, you be cool with that. But yeah, man. I used to love singing to females. <laughs> People are like, you sing like that. And you used to sing the girls? Oh, yeah. And tell me again, why are you single and no kids? Yeah, okay, I can see why. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Man, giving you my thoughts and opinions about what happened in this past Super Bowl. You know what? As I was thinking about this, and I said this before in my other podcast or leading up to this game, that... The quarterback matchup was the big deal. That was the headliner that was going to bring the people into uh, the viewing audience. That if you take a look at the matchups, quarterback, this could be an epic type of battle. This was almost like LeBron going up against MJ. We spoke about, you know, some of the great quarterback matchups in Super Bowl history, Roger Staubach versus Terry Bradshaw and Russell Wilson and Tom Brady and Peyton Manning versus Russell Wilson. And, you know, all of these great, great quarterbacks, Ben Roethlisberger versus Aaron Rodgers, John Elway Brett versus Brett Favre. And I thought that this matchup, even though at 43 years old and not having the same responsibilities and impact on the game that he did Once when he was in his prime with the New England Patriots, I thought that the brady Mahomes matchup was going to live up to the hype. Well, it didn't, thanks in part to the Kansas City offensive line and the defense of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers front four and the poorest uh, play by the defensive line with Kansas City, which allowed the offensive line of Tampa Bay, to smack them around, beat them around, establish the running game, and not put too much pressure or responsibility on Tom Brady to win this game. But when everything was all said and done, and the smoke settled from this contest, it reminded me, when you look at the quarterback matchup, Mahomes versus Brady, reminded me of the 1985 Super Bowl nineteen matchup between San Francisco and Miami over at Palo Alto remember 1985? Wonderful year back then. Just a young lad, 10th grade. Had a big crush on Lisa Bonet, Denise of the Huxtables. Uh, Yeah, Joe Montana versus Dan Marino. Tom Brady was playing the role of Joe Montana and playing the role of Dan Marino in the remix of this outcome was Patrick Mahomes. Because if you remember coming into that game, if you're of a younger generation, let me school you, let me educate you. Montana, at that time, was considered the best QB in the game. Like Brady, you know, he established himself as one of the greatest to ever play the game. Now, Montana would go to an even, even another level um, in the next coming years where he won back-to-back and his destruction. First, his uh, pass to John Taylor with about 30-something seconds left against the Cincinnati Bengals, which allowed the 49ers to win their third championship. And then the ultimate destruction of Denver, in the next Super Bowl, I think it was 55 to 10, where in that game, Joe Montana was otherworldly in that. But, um, you know, the situation, Joe Montana coming into uh, nineteen the game in 1985, that he was already, you know, considered a great, great, one of the greatest uh, quarterbacks who had ever played the game, just like Tom Brady. Patrick Mahomes, on the other hand, once again, playing the role of Dan Marino in this remake, Dan Marino, at the time, just like Mahomes, was considered the second coming of Jesus Christ playing center for um, for the Miami Dolphins. I mean, that season, Marino set record for most completions in the season, became the first quarterback to throw for 5,000 yards. He reached a total of 5,084 uh, yards. He set the record for most games throwing for at least 300 passing yards and the most games with 400 yards. This is a time, you remember, when you know, the passing numbers if we want to put it into what Marino did, if you want to put it into 2020 type of numbers, it would be like a quarterback right now throwing for 6,500 yards, throwing for at least 500 yards six times and 500 yards, three times and 400 yards, eight times, you know, some nonsense like that. If you want to go ahead and calibrate what the numbers that Dan Marino put up in 1984, what they were really, what they would be like in the year 2020. So, Dan Marino was supposed to be this guy. No one has thrown the ball like him. No one has seen a quarterback like him. No one has been as prolific as this guy. And Dan Marino basically was supposed to uh, dominate the world of football for the next ten years. And this was supposed to be the start with him going up against the then two. No, I think uh, yeah, the Forty ers had won only uh, one Super Bowl coming into that game. They beat uh, Cincinnati. Bill Walsh was still the coach, blah, blah, blah. But uh, so coming into this game, um, you know, Marino was supposed to be the guy that was going to, you know, take his rightful place among the mountaintop of the greatest of uh, the quarterbacks of that time. And that was supposed to start his journey toward, you know, being the greatest quarterback of all time. It was just a matter of, you know, usurping the present king of the quarterbacks, Joe Montana. Well, San Francisco won that game, thirty-eight to sixteen. Marino, because he had no running game, hmm, interesting. Marino was twenty-nine of fifty for three hundred eighteen yards, one touchdown, two interceptions. Montana, on the other hand, twenty-four of thirty-five, the efficient three thirty-one and three touchdowns. So similar to the game on Sunday, balance was the key in that game. Also, when you speak about Miami throwing the ball fifty times and running it only eight times, which was not, which was shocking. The way that Shula had just 180 his offensive philosophy because when he had the powerhouse team with the Miami Dolphins in the 1970s with Jim Kick and Mercury Morris and Larry Zonka and Bob Greasy, at quarterback, this was a guy who would run the ball 50 times and pass it only eight times, even though he had Paul Warfield on the team. But when that team got old and went away and he got this guy out of Pittsburgh named Dan Marino, who was slinging the ball all over the place, and like I mentioned before, it looked like somebody who the world of football had never seen before. And I think coming into you know Dan Marino being in the NFL, I don't think there was a quarterback like Dan Marino uh before uh, he set foot on the NFL field. So Don Shula was like, "Fuck running the running the ball, fuck that. Give me the Mark Duper and then and the, you know, the Mark's brothers and those guys, and let me just wing it, wing it, wing it." Well. As I mentioned before, regular season, Marino, unbelievable, great, supposed to uh, change the game. No one has ever seen anything like that. Got to the Super Bowl against a team in San Francisco, which had an awesome defense and a quarterback who was uh, accustomed to winning, who was a champion, who was already a Hall of Famer and an all-time great. Well, we see what happened. The coronation for Dan Marino becoming the new face and the new all-everything of the NFL went by the wayside. Miami threw the ball fifty times, ran it only eight. San Francisco threw the ball 35 times and ran it 40 times. So guess what? Miami has not been to a back has not been back to the Super Bowl since then. That was the last time they went to the Super Bowl, and while everybody was sitting there talking about, yeah, you know, Marino lost 38-16. But, you know, like I mentioned before, the way this guy plays quarterback, there'll be plenty of opportunities for Dan Marino to get back and win a Super Bowl. He never got back there. Made the AFC championship a couple of times, lost to the Buffalo Bills in the championship game a couple of times, I think. But uh, other than that, never came close. And that man played in the NFL for 17 years. Is that going to happen to Patrick Mahomes? As much as Mahomes getting back to Super Bowls multiple times seems like a sure thing, nothing in the NFL is a sure thing. And you know what? I would have said that even if they would have won the game, man. You, You never know. Now, if we take a look at the team, we take a look at the organization, we take a look at the players, we take a look at the talent level, we take a look at their age, we look take a look at all those things, I would bet that the Kansas City no longer champions have a chance to get back there, but nothing is, nothing is a given. I mean, this ain't the NBA where, you know, at game one a couple of years ago, you could probably predict that the Golden State Warriors were going to be in the NBA Finals. That the Cleveland Cavaliers in the Eastern Conference with LeBron Key, uh, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Love were going to be in the NBA Finals. That in the 80s, for the most part, you knew that the Boston Celtics and the Los Angeles Lakers were going to be meeting in the NBA Championship. Like during the Jordan years, you could predict that the Chicago Bulls were going to be in the NBA Championship. Works in the NBA like that. A lot of times works in baseball like that, even though there's been a little bit more parity in that situation. But the NFL is the most unpredictable when it comes to, yeah, this team is going to be back. This team is going to do this, that, and the other. Even though, again, I would still put my money, if I did have to do such a thing, put my money on the Kansas City champions coming back and uh, being in that this position again. So, come on, man. You're a Kansas City fan. Where are y'all going after this? What's going to be happening after this? Now, Mahomes had surgery on uh, Wednesday for the turf toe injury that bothered him late in the season and throughout the NFL playoffs. So Mahomes is expected to miss most of uh, off-season work with the team, but they say that he's fully good to go by training camp. This is according to a source. So what was what, – what are we going here? What are we doing here with Patrick Mahomes? You knew you knew what was coming because I've already read some, well, this is going to be against his legacy. Well, you know, all of a sudden now there's a, there's a chink in the armor all of a sudden now. Now, all of a sudden, people are starting to look a little cross-eyed. Now, all of a sudden, their tone, their bass, and their voice is starting to become a little bit more negative when it comes to Patrick Mahomes. Well, well, emperor has no clothes. Well, well, I mean, that type of talk. What are we doing here? Are we doing the classic build them up so we can tear them down type of thing? This game was supposed to be for Kansas City and Patrick Mahomes. This was supposed to be the coronation for Mahomes as he advanced... His journey towards the state of greatest of all timesville. That's where he was going. He had the car, he had his girlfriend, he had his dog or his pet, packed up everything. He was leaving Lubbock. He was leaving Potentialville. He was leaving, he's gonna be pretty good, one daysburg. He was leaving that pl- he was leaving that town, he was leaving that state, that city, that county. He was going to the greatest of all timesville, where he would be the mayor and governor of Mahomestown, baby. You know, that great state of greatest of all timesville. You know the other major cities in that in that region, and that greatest of all timesville state. You know, you know what I'm talking about. United Johnny, United States of America, Joe Montana's, Peytonsville, with Brad Paisley as being the mayor. Nationwide is on your side. Tom Bradysburg. I mean, that's where Patrick Mahomes was going to be going, man, the greatest of all times, Bill. He was going to be going to Club GOAT, Club G-O-A-T. And when he walked into the place with the girls screaming and the bodyguards not having to pat him down, that he was going to be going to the VIP section, baby. He was going to be walking into the club, give a what's up to a Jim Kelly, well, how's it going to Warren Moon? You know, give a little dap to Randall. You know, give a nice little you know bro hug to uh, John Elway. Excuse me, Mr. Mahomes. Yes, your seat at the table is in the VIP, VIP section is ready. Mr. Unitas, Mr. Montana, Mr. Mr. Manning, Mr. Breeze, Mr. Uh, Brady are waiting for you. Thanks, boss. Here we go. See, see you fellas later, Jim. Take it easy. I'll be back down a little bit later. Hold my drink, bitch. You know, and he was supposed to go up there and he was supposed to be seated at that table, right? And Johnny and Sammy Ball and those fellas were supposed to be like, welcome to the club, young man. We got the seat right out for you. We got the seat right here. Come on down. Come on down. Shit. We, we, he was almost going to be sitting there talking about, I'll spend a little bit more time with you fellas because in a few minutes, yeah, I got to go up to the next VIP section. You know, the one that's being occupied by, uh, by Michael Jordan, by LeBron James, by Serena Williams. Ah, by Usain Bolt, by Michael Phelps. Yeah, you know, them fellas are up there calling me. I mean, you know, what can I say? I mean, you know, when you're as great as I am, I mean, no offense, Johnny, but how many championships did you win? (laughs) No offense, Peyton, Peyton, but you know, I mean, y'all you were great and everything, don't get me wrong, best of all time, right? But that's just in your sport. I gotta go up to, you know, the greatest of all time. You know, I got my All right, Muhammad, I'll be up there in a second. Hold on for a second. You know, tell Sugar Ray that I'm going to be up there in just a second. All right. <laughs> all right, fellas. So are we done here? Cool, cool, cool. Come on, Tommy and you. Let's head on up. Let's head on up, baby. We got reservations and it's a quarter past eight. So, you know, that's where this is all this hyperbole non bullshit of what I'm spewing here. That's where Mahomes is supposed to be going. That's the rarefied air that Patrick Mahomes was supposed to be going toward after he won the Super Bowl beating Tom Brady, winning his second consecutive Super Bowl. Didn't happen. And despite my argument that what Patrick Mahomes did on Sunday was one of the most impressive things that I think I've seen him done, him do, done do, that one of the most impressive things I think a quarterback has displayed under the pressure that he was under, that all of a sudden now, You lose that game. Now, all of a sudden, now is that going to be the deal in terms of, well, you know, he'll never be able to be as great as Brady. Why? Because he lost. Couldn't beat him. Brady being the GOAT. That's it. Case closed, right? Doesn't matter. Mahomes could come back and win 14 more championships in a row. Doesn't matter. You're talking about the greatest of all time. He couldn't beat him when he needed to. So how will this damage or tarnish the legacy of Patrick Mahomes. That's what I want to ask you about. Because, you know, it takes him out of the company right now. Terry Bradshaw, Joe Montana, and Troy Aikman. What company am I talking about? Those are the QBs who were undefeated in more than two Super Bowls. Brady and Montana were 4-0. Brady with Pittsburgh. Montana with San Francisco. Troy Aikman with 3-0. Remember the Dallas Cowboys where he won three Super Bowls in four years. In fact, the other only other quarterbacks to uh, be undefeated... With multiple Super Bowl uh, appearances, are Bart Starr won the first two Super Bowls, Jim Plunkett, not in the Hall of Fame, but he won with Oakland and then he won when he was with the uh, LA Raiders, and Eli Manning, who is 2 0 in Super Bowls. And who did he beat? Eli beat both times? Tom Brady. Interesting. So, I mean, you take a look at other all time great quarterbacks with multiple Super Bowl appearances. John Elway was 2-3, Jim Kelly 0-4, Fran the Man Tarkin Tan was 0-3, Roger the Great Stallback, was 2-3, Bob Greasy Hall of Famer was 2-1, these guys are all in the Hall of Fame. So, you know, somewhere Mahomes right now, despite being 25 years old, is 1-1, one one. so he hasn't gotten to that point yet, but is there going to be any mental scars or injuries to Mahomes after this defeat? This is going to After the game, he was pretty magnanimous. He was pretty, in terms, sounded pretty good in terms of, uh, you know, he wasn't pouting or he wasn't moping or he wasn't being short or curt or being a source loser or anything like that. What he said after the game was he said that, uh, quote, obviously it hurts right now. It hurts a lot. But we're going to continue to get better. We have a young group of guys that have a lot of success, and we learn from that. But we had a few failures we have to learn from that. We can't let ourselves we can't let this define us. We have to continue to get better going into next year and prepare ourselves to hopefully be in this game again. We knew it wasn't always going to be successful, and we weren't going to be able to win a thousand championships in a row. We knew we were going into we knew we were going to go through times like this in adversity. I think The best thing about it is the guys we have, the leadership ability to be even better next year. Hmm. Yeah. Sounds pretty good to me. Now, given truth serum or, you know, after the cameras and everybody's, you know, not around him and it's just him and his thoughts and maybe those of his closest confidants, what are his thoughts and feelings? Who knows? Who knows? But I'm going to put my trust in my homes to say that, you know, this is not something that's going to uh, either crush him or i think he also understands the magnitude of you know the how hard it is to get here and what he needs to do to get back there marino himself said that when he lost it's like hey you know what screw it i'll be back here don't worry about it i mean you know the way i'm rocking and rolling and doing my thing the organization the coach that we have yeah it sucks that we lost but you know i'm looking forward to coming back here plenty of times and it took him i don't know years upon years upon years to finally realize oh shit You know what? This shit is a lot harder than I thought it was. I don't think Mahomes is going to underestimate the uh, journey and just the luck in terms of injuries and other things to uh, not work as hard as he possibly can to get back here. The Kansas City team next year is going to be a lot different than it was this season, just like it was when they won the Super Bowl over San Francisco in 2019. And if you remember that game, Kansas City was... uh, was behind a good portion of that game. And it it took an overthrow by Jimmy Garoppolo to maybe have the conversation where we're sitting up here talking about, wait a minute now, Patrick Mahomes is 0-2. How great is this guy supposed to be again? Well, now he's lost his first two Super Bowls. Are we taking a look at Jim Kelly Jr.? Or are we taking a look at this generation's Jim Kelly? What's going on here? So, you know, it's, it's, it's perilous between being the greatest of all time and being a guy who, quote-unquote, didn't live up to his potential. So it's, I think Mahomes realized, and I think that you being a fan of Kansas City also have to realize, hey, man, you know, this this shit ain't easy. Tom Brady might have had it look easy, along with Bill Belichick and Romeo Cornell and Josh McDaniels and Bill O'Brien and the others on that staff and everything. But Brady was with the Patriots 20 years. Won six Super Bowls, which is awesome, which is great. But sometimes we start getting into the, um, the, the thought pattern that Brady was in the Super Bowl every year. I mean, nine Super Bowls in 20 years? I mean, basically it seems like that, but no. He missed the Super Bowl a lot more than he made the Super Bowl. But if we take a look at all the great quarterbacks, there's always been a gap, or there's always been a period of time where they're not winning Super Bowls, or they're not getting into Super Bowls. So I think it would be a little bit presumptuous, and I think it would be wrong to just go on the assumption that yeah, you know Kansas City is going to make it back next year, and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll uh, take revenge for losing in the Super Bowl, and everything will be right with the world, and Kansas City will be back on track to being the dynasty that we all predicted them to be if they won the Super Bowl. I don't know how much I don't know how much it would hurt or help. It's either going to go two ways with this. When New England blew the opportunity to be the greatest football team for one season when they lost to the Giants and. Go 19 and 0, it didn't crush them. It didn't break their souls. It didn't break their hearts. I mean, that wasn't the the dynamite that blew up the dynasty. They still won multiple Super Bowls and were still great uh, till the very end. You know, eight, nine, ten years even after that. You take a look at a team like the Seattle Seahawks, who were on the verge with Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll as the coach and Legion of Doom and a Boom and all this and all those things. They were on the verge of becoming a team where people might think of them as becoming a dynasty. Good young defense, good young quarterback, Marshawn Lynch at the running back, Pete Carroll at the coach. So it was a matter of, you know, again, you get past New England. Now we're talking about back-to-back Super Bowls. I mean, this could be a this could be a situation here where we're gonna be winning another two to three, which could bring us four to five, and let's start talking about Pittsburgh, and let's start talking about Dallas and you know, teams of the 70s and 80s and 90s and all those type of things. Well, Malcolm Butler made that interception at the goal line when Marshawn Lynch should have gotten the handoff because Pete Carroll was more interested in having Russell Wilson be the star of the show rather than winning the football game. Arrogance, hubris, whatever. But, I mean, to a man, Richard Sherman and those guys, they said hey, that we never, we never got past that. We never recovered from that. That was the end of of any type of great success that we all envisioned when Malcolm Butler intercepted that pass. You take a look at the catastrophe. You take a look at the damage, the wreckage of what the Atlanta Falcons were when they blew a 28 to three lead in the uh, third quarter. Take a look now only a couple of years later, Matt Ryan, we don't know what's going to be situated with him. Dan Quinn was uh, fired this season. I mean, there was a lot of change. There was a lot of turmoil. I mean, I'm not saying that Atlanta was going to be on the verge of being a dynasty, but I'm saying Super Bowl losses can affect teams in many different ways. I don't know where exactly you can find the uh, find the reason. I don't know exactly where you can go to determine whether this team has the mental toughness or the fortuitousness or whatever to get back on that horse and ride it again. Does it come from the ownership? Does it come from the coach? Does it come from the quarterback? How much of those combinations, how much of those people that I just mentioned play into that role? How much is it the coach or the quarterback or the ownership or the GM or the community? I don't, who knows? I'm quite sure all of those play a role depending upon the organization. I don't know, who knows? Who's gonna be able to get the Kansas City football team back on track? Is it going to be Mahomes? Is it going to be Andy Reid? Is it going to be bien Who's it going to be? Frank Clark? Who's it going to be? It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. I'm not worried myself in Patrick Mahomes. I'm not. I think his superstardom is uh, barring some type of you know injury. I mean, major injury. I think Patrick Mahomes is on his way to uh, Greatsville, <laughs> to greatest of all Timesville. Bill. I think he's going to be. I think he's going to be in that VIP section. I think he's going to be invited to that party. Shall we say? But let's put it this way: the man is what twenty five years old, right? Twenty five years old. He's already won a Super Bowl. He's been to two Super Bowls, three conference championships. He's won an MVP trophy. He's made the All uh, Pro NFL team two of the three years as a starter. I don't see any evidence at all where he's going to be falling off a cliff. And and by the way, he's been doing this against the best QBs in the league, Hall of Fame quarterbacks, some of the greatest quarterbacks who's ever played while they're still in their prime. Aaron Rodgers is going to to go down as a generational great. Drew Brees is going to go down as a generational great. Brady's going to go down as arguably the greatest of all time. Then you still have Russell Wilson. Ben Roethlisberger is going to be a Hall of Famer. We're speaking about guys playing at this high a level who are still playing at, you know, Brady's not a shell of himself. Breeze, near the end because of cracked ribs, might have been, but he was still one of the best quarterbacks out there, even at the advanced age of 30, 39, 40, 41. Aaron Rodgers just won an MVP this season at 37. Russell Wilson is elevating himself continually. I don't know if he's going to be with Seattle still doing it, but we'll see. Roethlisberger, despite the fact that, you know, his best days as far as physically is behind him, missed, All of last season because of injury and this season you saw the limitations on what he can do. But still, a guy who was a a potent quarterback for the uh, Steelers. So Mahomes is doing this all in an era where you can say that this wasn't a down down period of time for quarterbacks in the NFL. So I I have no concern, and you shouldn't either, about Mahomes falling off a cliff in terms of, oh my goodness, well is he the second coming of Dan Marino? Uh, Have we seen the best of Patrick Mahomes with Kansas City in terms of the success? Was the Super Bowl loss to New New England, Tom Brady, to uh, Tampa Bay, was that the start of a four or five or six-year stretch where Kansas City does not make it back to the Super Bowl, does not win a Super Bowl? And if that happens, what's the narrative written about Patrick Mahomes moving forward. But if he's never played another game, if if Patrick Mahomes never plays another game because of choice, not by tragedy, not by death, but by choice, if he just says, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to do a Jim Brown route and just say, see you later, alligator. I'm done. You know, he's still going to be a Hall of Famer. If Patrick Mahomes quits today, the man is still, four years into the league, still, a first-team ballot Hall of Famer. Only Jim Brown, Dan Marino, and Gale Sayers could make that distinction in their professional football careers. If Dan Marino would have quit four years into his NFL playing career, he still would have been a Hall of Famer. Gale Sayers, his career was cut short because of injuries, Played only 68 games, no doubt about it, no brainer, Hall of Famer. If Jim Brown, instead of seven or nine, I think he played nine years. So if Jim Brown, after five years, decided to hang him up instead of nine, Jim Brown was still, would still would have been in the Hall of Fame. The impact that these guys had so soon, so quickly into their NFL careers, were so incredible, were so strong that it was already... Set that those guys were going to go to Canton. Now, let's see where are we going to put these guys. As far as legacies are concerned. Same thing with Patrick Mahomes. Mahomes quits today. Hall of Famer. So, the baseline mark for his greatness has already been already been set. 25, year four in his NFL career. Let's see what he's going to do, be able to do to build on that. That, mother, that guy is still the only guy with that distinction. Deshaun Watson is still working on a playing career that's going to put him in the Hall of Fame. Same thing with Josh Allen. Same thing with others. Mahomes has already gotten there. (laughs) Mahomes has already traveled that journey quicker than almost anybody in football history, (laughs) as I I mentioned it before. But maybe you can throw in the argument of Brown, Marino, and Gale Sayers. So I don't have any quarrels. I don't have any worries about, uh, about Patrick Mahomes being able to uh, be the quarterback that can be the overwhelmingly favorite to get his team to a Super Bowl. The question is, what is Kansas City going to do to make sure that happens? They're going to have to do something to improve that offensive line in all areas. They have a first-round pick. They have their number 31 pick and their number 63 pick, so their first and second-round pick. They're going to have to do something in terms of getting an offensive line as far as getting a tackle or a guard or somebody, take the best offensive lineman available. If you want to go out on the free agency route, the free-ups and cap space, what are you going to do regarding Eric Fisher and Mitchell Schwartz, who were the uh, two starting tackles before they got injured? How is Fisher going to return from his torn Achilles? When is he going to be able to return from his torn Achilles, which happened in the playoff game against Cleveland? So this is not a week two or a week three injury. When is he going to be available? And how is he going to be? I'm quite sure he's not going to be able, well, he's not going to be able to participate physically in any OTAs and possibly training camps. So, when he does finally get on the field and play, what type of physical football playing, professional football playing shape is he going to be in? How much is he going to be able to help the team? So, that's a question right there. And do you keep him if you're Kansas City moving forward? So, look, two of the starters from the offensive line for Kansas City. It's coming back. They missed 2019 after refusing to play because of COVID. So that'll be an upgrade right there. But what's Kansas City going to do to fortify that offensive line? And yeah, I understood that they made the Super Bowl with that uh, offensive line and tatters. And they beat a pretty good uh, Buffalo Bills team. And they managed to keep, uh, um, oh, my goodness gracious, for Cleveland. <clears throat> Mm, 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 mm. Number one pick from Texas A&M, whose name I'm blanking on, best one of the best pass rushers in the game. I don't know, but they managed to keep him off of uh, Mahomes. So there's there there's a there's a an inkling. There's just a spectacle of glass half fullness in that, but they're gonna have to do something to uh, improve. Their offensive line, Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us talking about what we need to do, talking about what you need to do, talking about what you need to hope for with Kansas City, improving that team. As I mentioned before, Patrick Mahomes, I think he's going to be fine. I think he's going to continue to get better. I think he's going to be able to become more dominant. So what is Kansas City going to do to protect this this, this lottery pick, to protect this, uh, you know, this, this jewel, this gem? The generational all-time for generational greats to uh maximize his potential for the next 12, 15, 17 years. They need to add another wide receiver, I think, to compliment Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey, myself. They need someone more reliable than Sammy Watkins. Now there are reports that they're gonna to try to re-sign him. If Watkins could remain in could remain on the field and not be injured all the time, that would be great, but he's always injured. He seemed to be missing time because he's always injured. And uh um, McCall Harneman hasn't proven to be trustworthy of a number two receiver responsibility role. So you need to do something about that. You need to do something as far as if your Kansas City is concerned to improve your pass rush. Fred Clark is the only viable pass rusher on that team. And you could use an upgrade from the linebacker position. And we take a look at some of the best teams in the league in the AFC, Buffalo. We don't know what Indianapolis is going to be because we don't know if they're going to be having Carson Wentz at their quarterback. We don't know what they're going to do about that situation. Baltimore is still going to be there. Cleveland is ascending. Tennessee still has the tandem of Derek Henry and Ryan Tannehill. Miami, great coach. We don't know who's going to be playing quarterback. Could it be Deshaun Watson? Could it be somebody else? If you're Tua, for the next couple of years, Kansas City, I think you're okay. But you never know. Pittsburgh isn't going anywhere despite some of the uh, salary cap issues and the quarterback issues that they have. So I still think, after everything is all said and done, that Kansas City still should be that team. And You you never know who's going to be moving forward. There's always a team that could surprise, whether it be a team like the Los Angeles Chargers or a team like the Las Vegas Raiders or not the Jets, not the Bengals. Mention the Steelers. Mention the Browns. Mention the Ravens. The Broncos need a quarterback. I mean, if they get Carson Wentz and he turns his life around, I mean, do they have what it takes to compete with Kansas City? We don't know. But there's always going to be a team that's going to surprise. there're always, always, always that didn't do well the year before that is going to uh, improve and challenge. In the AFC, who's that team going to be? It'll be interesting to see moving forward. But as for right now, Hey, man, tough break, tough loss for Kansas City. And yeah, the journey to greatest of all timesville for Mahomes might have taken a little bit of a detour. There might be some rush hour traffic in Mediocresville that's slowing him down to reaching his journey. But don't worry, (laughs) don't worry, Uh, Mahomes is going to be reaching that city. (laughs) Kitchen is shining, whom Marty. I could miss a Marty. Could the the Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Namaste. Let me see. NBA, NBA, NBA. Ah, to play or not to play the national anthem. That's no longer the question. The Dallas Mavericks will resume playing the national anthem prior to... Home games, having previously not played it in 11 regular season games at American Airlines Center. Now, according to multiple reports, Mavericks owner Mark Cuban directed the team to stop playing the anthem before the season. And a team spokesperson on Wednesday initially said there were were no plans to play the anthem in the future. However, the NBA then released a statement saying all teams... Would play the song. The statement said, "With NBA teams now in the process process of welcoming fans back into their arenas, all teams will play the national anthem in keeping with long-standing league policy." <laughs> Jeez. The Mavericks then announced that the anthem will be played prior to his game against the Atlanta Hawks and the Dallas Mavericks, which was yesterday. Good game. Good game. Good win by Dallas. Uh, I don't know, man. I mean, you know, the NBA is supposed to be the for- front runner on all these things in terms of making changes. I think they did a wonderful job in that when the league resumed after the pandemic in terms of the bubble down in Orlando. I think the NBA has been one of the leaders in terms of bringing awareness to some of the issues which is facing the black community. I think, he's done a- think they've done a fabulous job with that. And I think more than any other league, I think the owners or the commissioner of the NBA, the league owners, have been uh, pretty, pretty, uh, you know, agreeable to having the players do what they do in terms of voicing their thoughts and opinions about what's happening, about what's going down, about what can be done to improve the relationships and improve the communities uh, of those of the down press and the. Uh, downtrodden, the oppressed, the downtrodden, and those who have been discriminated uh, for centuries in this country that we live in. So surprising that all of a sudden now in a situation like this that, again, maybe it's because Mark Cuban is the one who's doing that. I don't know what it is, but uh, they said that, uh, no, sorry, the national anthem will be played, which is surprising because, again, you, you didn't hear anybody or you didn't hear any of the League officials or anonymous sources within the owners group or whatever talk about any outrage or disappointment or negativity when it came to the <clears throat> when it came to the players expressing their abilities to uh, use their God-given natural rights in terms of peaceful protesting in any way, shape, or form. So now all of a sudden, this is going to come up, and the commissioner is going to be like, "Yeah, we, this is what we got to do." Surprising. White House press secretary, she responded to the initial news that the Mavericks have not been playing the national anthem on Wednesday, noting that she didn't, she hadn't spoken to President Joe Biden about the matter. Boy, that sounds so much better than the previous. So what she said about the matter was, I know that he's incredibly proud to be an American. What she said about, you know, Joe Biden and his stance about kneeling and forms of uh, peaceful protest during the anthem She said that I know that he's been incredibly proud to be an American. He has great respect for the anthem and all that it represents, especially for our men and women serving in uniform all around the world. He'd also say that, of course, that part of the pride of our country means recognizing moments where we as a country haven't lived up to our highest ideals, which is often and at times what people are speaking to when they they take action at sporting events. And it means respecting the rights of people granted to them in the constitution to peacefully protest. That's why he ran for president in the first place. And that's what he's focused on doing every day. So I don't know. It's a, it's a, uh, it's, it's verbiage to try to, uh, appease all folks Uh, Let me see. I know that he's incredibly proud to be American. He has great respect for the anthem and all that it represents, especially for our men and women serving in uniform all around the world. So he's trying to appease the idiots who still believe that the players are protesting the national anthem and protesting being American and all those type of things. So that statement was to appease those idiots. He'd also say that, of course, that part of the pride of our country means recognizing moments where we as a country haven't lived up to our highest ideals, which is often and at times what people are speaking to when they take action at sporting events. So he's speaking to people like me who, after the first statement that she made, and we have to explain again and again and again, the reason why we're kneeling is not because we're disrespecting the flag. We're not disrespecting the military. We're not disrespecting the country. What we're doing is once again... Being able to use one of our rights granted by the Constitution in taking a form of protest, which is peaceful, which is nonviolence, and gets our point across in terms of what we want to say. So, in one sentence, he's talking about we're making sure that uh, those, you know, those folks who are, you know, oh, disrespecting the flag, bullshit, that's taken care of, and then those like myself who are saying that this is not the reason why we do it. Then he goes on to say and it means respecting the rights of people granted to them by the constitution to peacefully protest. That's why he ran for president in the first place and that's what we do. So and it and it means respecting the rights of people granted to them in the constitution to peacefully protest. So he says he says something without really saying anything. Which you know in a way is nice because what are you going to say? Again, if you're goal i guess is to appease as many people as possible what are you going to say in that situation instead of saying you know what the right thing should be is that hey you know what this is a sporting event we ain't at war the national anthem is important to us it's everything that and the other but what's the what's the necessity of playing it at a sporting event it's a sporting event it's a it's it's a means of entertainment people going to a sporting event We're not going to war. We're not going, whoever wins or loses this contest, this sporting event, doesn't take any way, doesn't take away any of our liberties or our freedoms or anything like that. So it's a sporting event. It's a form of entertainment. It's no different than going to the movies. It's no different than going to a play. Do they play the national anthem before a movie starts? Do they play the national anthem before a ballet starts? Do they play the National Anthem before a performance on Broadway starts? No. So what's the big difference if we take the National Anthem away from sporting events? Well, it's tradition and everything else. That type of thing has been a tradition for up to 10 years. Well, you know what else has been a a tradition? Um, Oppressing poor people. You know what's also has been a tradition in this country? Minimizing the rights of gays and lesbians and women and people with disabilities that's also been a that's also been something that america that this country has been doing for centuries upon centuries and so if we take that away i think it would make this world a better place it would make this country a better place now i'm not equating playing the national anthem <clears throat> to racism and oppression but what i'm saying is that there's a lot of things that have been uh What's the word I'm looking for? There's been a lot of there's been a lot of norms in this country that we just kind of accept and don't want to move on because of tradition. That if we did move away from it, that uh, it wouldn't hurt us at all. If we took away the playing of the national anthem before a sporting event, it wouldn't hurt your way of life. It wouldn't hurt our way of life. It wouldn't make this country any weaker. It wouldn't make this country any more vulnerable to any type of outside attack. We don't have to worry about any international ISIS or anything like that attacking us. We have enough folks in this own uh, in our own country claiming to be Americans who are doing that job quite well. So I, I don't understand what the big deal about the ending of the national anthem is going to be. And of course, what I'd like to know is, who are the folks who are telling Adam Silver? What ownership group, what person of the owners is telling the... Um, it's telling Adam Silver, no, this is something that we have to do. This is something that we can't back down to. If this is this just a matter of keeping the players in check, make sure they don't have too much power? If this is this really a situation where they're so scared of the advertisers pulling out their advertising partners that there's going to be some type of uh, you know, financial backlash, financial a penalty for not playing the national anthem, that all of a sudden now, you know, patriot groups and other jackass groups might go to these advertisers who sponsor the NBA, who work with the NBA and say, well, you know what, these guys, the league that you're giving money to, the league partner, your partner, which is the NBA, these guys are anti-American, these guys are, you know, this, that, and the other. Are the league owners worried about that? The image of the league affecting the bottom line which is league revenue. Are they worried about that? That somehow, some way, that league revenue is gonna be even uh, is gonna be even more damaged by the non playing of the national anthems. When you go to a basketball game, when you watch a basketball game, do you even notice? I mean, I watch it thousands upon thousands of basketball games. I don't even notice. When I would go follow the Phoenix Suns, or when I would go cover the Phoenix Suns when I was working down at Phoenix, it didn't bother me or anything like that in terms of whether the national anthem was going to be played or not going to be played. So I, I I don't get it. I don't understand it. We've already seen in this country, for the most part, that as long as it doesn't hurt your bottom line, as long as it doesn't hurt your pocketbook, as long as it doesn't hurt all those things, we can go ahead and tolerate almost anything. Just as long as it's as as predominantly white. By white folks, we we don't care. So one team owner, who's nowhere near, you know, rebel rouser, he told the reporter that the Star Spangled Banner should be placed should be replaced by uh, America the the Beautiful, so that the national anthem should be replaced by America the Beautiful. Here's an opportunity, I think. i here at Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with it with me. Here's an opportunity for the players to turn a negative for them into a position of power. If the league mandates that the national anthem be played before the start of the game, if I'm the players, if I'm the players union, I'm like, okay, fine. You guys go ahead and you guys play the national anthem. Fine. But you know what? Also, what should be played? at the uh, beginning of games, along with the National Anthem, let's play Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is also known as the Black National Anthem. That should also be played. We're going to sit up here and start playing anthems in Ode to this Country, speak about what this country is all about. Then if you're going to play the National Anthem at a sporting event, fine, fine. Make sure that Black National Anthem is going to be played, too. And look, I I understand that the playing of the National Anthem, it also gives an opportunity for those in the community, you know, to to come on out and do their thing. I mean, how many times have you been to a game and you see uh, someone singing the National Anthem? They might be a student at a local high school or that might be someone from the community who has a beautiful voice who wants to sing um the national anthem and and, and right there it gives them an opportunity a a once in a lifetime a memorable moment in their life to come out and do that so uh, there's another part in terms of why owners might want to go out and um you know not get rid of the playing of the national anthem the fact that it could be something to bridge uh bridge a path to the community maybe a small one maybe not something of great significance but still, it's an olive branch. Still, it's a hand to be sh- shook, to be taken, to be held. So why not? If you're if one of the uh, organizations or if you're sponsoring a, 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 you know, a charity or, or anything like that, to have the opportunity to have someone from the community come out and sing the national anthem before a game, I mean, why not? Why not? So maybe that might be one thing. But again you're going to do that, have someone else else also come out from the community and sing the Black National Anthem. Why not? And if I'm the player, it's just like, okay, you know what? If you're going to go ahead and say, you no, know, the league mandates, again, mandates that the National Anthem must be played, but we're not going to go ahead and play the uh, Black National Anthem, all right. You know what we're going to do then? Before it started the National Anthem, we're going to go back into the locker room. We're going to stay in the locker room when the song is played. And then we'll go about coming back out and doing that. Now again, we could also put that into the to the uh, to the stew of hey, you know, this is all part of things in our community or something that we want to see change. We want to see something in police reform. We want to see something in uh, justice pre- reform. We want to see something in terms of whatever. Um, Whatever plate that you're trying to bring attention to within the community, you know, something like this can happen because you know those guys go back in and say, you know, go back in when the national anthem is playing and they stay in there. You know that people are going to be asking, you know, reporters after the game are going to be like, What's that all about? And it will give the players the platform to say, This is the reason why we did it. And it doesn't have to be just uh, the situation, well, because our bosses told us to do that. So we said, No, no, no. We stomped our feet and we threw a hissy fit. And this is our way of being disobedient. Most folks who are working a nine to five, most, as Bobby the Brain Heaton would say, most eight to five white software and clock punching humanoids will take a look at that, you know, and say, oh, well, you know, these guys, their bosses told them to do this. The guys that are paying their paychecks, the ones who are making millions upon millions upon millions of dollars for the job that they do, which is basically playing a kid's game and throwing a ball into the hoop. These guys are being asked to do something as little as standing and representing your country and showing pride and showing love and respect for your country. And these guys who, by the way, are who are enjoying the freedom, freedom that this country is providing for them with the millions of dollars that they're uh, being given to pay. Uh, to play this game of basketball, they're going to disrespect the fans. They're going to disrespect the country. They're going to disrespect the military. They're going to disrespect everything about freedom, liberty, democracy, and go into the locker room when if I did that as a uh, regular worker, as I did that as an hourly wage guy working 35, 40 hours a week, if I even thought about doing something like that to defy my bosses in that way, I would be out the door so quick without any unemployment insurance. It would make my head spin. So fuck those players. So that all of a sudden becomes the leading message. That all of a sudden becomes the leading storyline instead of focusing on this is the reason why they did this and presenting their reason for doing it, bringing it out to the community and having that be the focus of why they did it. Not because they're just a bunch of spoiled, rich, uneducated ingrates who are uh, boo-hooing and playing the race card and doing all this other stupid shit, which uh, those guys were, uh, which those guys were, uh, you know, labeled ass whenever they do something like that. A bunch of Colin Kaepernick wannabes who don't uh, respect and don't, uh, you know, don't have the knowledge to realize the great position that they're in. Meanwhile, you have police brutality. Meanwhile, you have uh, housing discrimination. Meanwhile, you have an uh, unfair uh, legal system and, and those type of things, which the players could be bringing, uh, <clears throat> bringing attention to. If, again, if the league would say we're going to play the national anthem, but not the black national anthem, you are mandating that this be played without any type of uh, acquiescence to say, you know what, if you're going to do this for us, we're going to do this for you, so and and I think really I think this could be a uh, an opening for the players because I I really think I don't know I I've never you know sat down and talked to uh, talked to Mark Cuban or Ted Leonsis or any of the other Genie Buss, any of the other Vivek Ramadive any of the other owners NBA owners so I don't, I don't know what their personal response would be and. You know, you get 32 owners into a room and what can you do to, um, you know, keep the golden goose a golden and the money coming. You got to remember now, the league not only is facing the uh, situation where, you know, there's no fans in the stands for the most part, no fans at the arena, so you're losing revenue that way. They're still trying to overcome the situation that Daryl Morey, the former general manager of the Houston Rockets, put them in when he made that uh, tweet about you know standing strong with Japan, which pissed off the uh, folks in Asia or folks in China, and uh, the NBA lost a good load of money because of that uh, severed uh, partnership with the uh, with some of the revenue streams coming from China. So the NBA, while yes of course it's doing well, and NBA franchises franchises are still very uh, are, are still very valuable. And are still worth a whole lot. But you have to be careful. You have to be careful of the stuff. So, in one hand, the owners are like, you know, hey, you know, we, we ain't making money hand over fist. And while, you know, my franchise is worth a couple of billion dollars and all that type of stuff, I'm not going to try to do anything humanly possible to take away from the value of my franchise. So, if it means that we have to play the national anthem to appease the jackasses, that's fine. Because jackasses... Buy merchandise, back jackasses, buy tickets and jackasses, watch NBA basketball. So I'm not going to do anything to upset our guests who uh, watch our games and go to our games and love our players and this, that, and the other. So if it means the National Anthem has to be played, the National Anthem has to be played. NBA players should be like, absolutely, absolutely. I hate the fact that the salary cap is not where it should be. Understood. But damn it, if we're going to do this for you, and I understand your argument, The very least that you can do is to go ahead and play the Black National Anthem. And if you're afraid of losing revenue that way, the folks who are going to say, well, fuck this, because they're playing Lift Every Voice and Sing, I'm no longer going to follow the NBA, or I'm no longer going to watch the NBA, they weren't interested in the NBA to begin with. And number two, what advertiser is going to pull out over that? Well, I'm pulling out and I'm not going to be working with the NBA anymore because They have the nerve to play the Black National Anthem along with the National Anthem. Fuck that. To hell with that. Now, they might disguise it in a way as, you know, times are tough and we have to cut back. And, you know, we enjoyed our relationship with the NBA. And hopefully down the road, we'll pick it back up. But as of right now, you know, cost cutting and everything. And, uh, you know, we have to go a different direction. So, sorry, NBA. You know, this, that and the other. They, They might disguise their disgust. Uh, having the Black National Anthem being played before a game along with the National Anthem. They might disguise it that way for the reason why they don't want to uh, continue a relationship, a financial relationship, partnership with the NBA. But I, I don't think that would be the case. And once again, for every advertiser who would drop off because of that, I think there would be another advertiser or two or three more than willing to take their place in take over that revenue stream that would be coming back to the NBA, which in turn would be continuing back to uh, paying the players. So I I think in in that situation, yeah. And like I mentioned before, people are talking about, you know, you can make a statement and you can go. The NBA has done more than enough to make statements and continuing to make statements. I've been very vocal about the NFL. Where's the NFL right now with the, with the, uh, Black coaches not being hired. Where's the NFL? Where's the Malcolm Jenkins of the world? Where's the, uh, black NFL players? Where are they right now? Why are they trying to do something? Anything. Make their voices heard about this is bullshit. This is nonsense. How once again, Eric B. Enemy got passed over for multiple jobs and those who are less successful, those who are uh, less uh, qualified got jobs. Where's the black NFL players coming out with that? Where are they? So, you know, this is a situation where if the players don't feel that this is the fight they need to fight in terms of the league playing the national anthem or going against Mark Cuban and saying, no, you will play the national anthem, especially when there's going to be people back in the arena. I can understand that. They've got their platforms They've got their uh, situations. They've got their game plans. They've got their ways of uh, trying to make change for the better of this country by helping out our communities in other ways than bringing attention to the national anthem. But yet, and still, once again, I would say, if I'm the players, if they feel strong enough in doing this, I think it could work. You want us to go ahead, and not just because it's February and Black Hat and Black uh, History Month, but for every. NBA game that's going to be played, you want even in Toronto, fuck it, while they're playing the Canadian National Anthem, fuck it, you want us to uh, go up there and be good soldiers with this and say, hey, okay, good idea, yeah, we'll go ahead and we'll sit there with the uh, playing of the National Anthem, but we would also strongly request, along with that, after the playing of the National Anthem... Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. Ring with the harmonies of liberty. You go ahead and you also play Lift Every Voice and Sing, a.k.a. the Black National Anthem. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Who? Wendell Wallace. What? Wendell Wallace. Que paso. Wendell Wallace. Damn. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss and get down on today in the world of sports. Good talk about what's happening with the uh, plight of the NBA, the national anthem deal. I just, you know, I mean, it's just, I we can't nba players aren't going to solve the world i mean i I love the enthusiasm i want to keep i want them to keep doing it don't get me wrong but you know i mean you know some we have some issues we have to fight on a little bit stronger than others the national anthem again bringing up a situation where you know what maybe we can compromise and uh lift every voice and sing sounded good to me so uh yeah, that's my that was my discussion on that. Wendell's World and Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right. Well, as you know, the love of my life, my wife, the Georgetown Hoyas, my basketball team, from the potential of positivity and optimism to the reality of bleakness and despair in less than a week. That's what being a fan of the Georgetown Hoyas will do for you. Just one Sunday ago. Super Bowl Sunday ago. Lost to the third-ranked team in the country, Villanova Wildcats on the road, 84-74. They played Villanova tight for 35 minutes, over 35 minutes. Javon Blair hit a jumper with 4.22 left to go, which cut the lead for Villanova to 70-69. to Unfortunately, Georgetown didn't get any closer because Villanova pulled the game, put the game away for good with a Cole Swider three-pointer with 2.01 to go. Make it a 78-71. A couple of uh, plays later, the uh, game was out of reach. But, you know, for the game, hey, Georgetown shot 50%. Cutis Wahab was uh, very devastating inside, scored 17 points. Other players in double figures, Javon Blair had 18 points. Now he shot 720 on the field, four for 13 from the three-point line. to get those uh, 18, but he had five assists. Chudier Bilei, Continued uh, with his fine play, scoring 12 points on four of seven shooting. Jamarco Pickett scored 12 points on four of eight shooting and eight rebounds. Things were looking hopeful going into the game Tuesday against Creighton at home. I mentioned before that the last time they played Creighton, they won, excuse me, last time they played Creighton, they won on the road. I, I called it one of the biggest wins in the Patrick Ewing coaching era there have been some good ones. In the second year, I remember they beat Vill- Villanova, the defending champions at the time, beat them handily at home. I remember the game at Marquette where they won on the road when Marquette was ranked. I remember the game last season against Butler where Butler, I believe, was ranked and they won at Hinkle Fieldhouse with only six players. I remember there's been some really good victories for Georgetown in the Patrick Ewing era, but I thought one of the better ones was this win against Creighton, a couple of games to go on the road. The way that they played, the way that uh, they led the entire game, the way that they responded to multiple runs by Creighton to get themselves back into the ball game when normally, especially this season, that Georgetown would crack under pressure and that Creighton would obviously take them over and then, you know, go for the victory. It didn't happen. So it was like, you know what? Hey. You know what, this is something where the team is improving, the players are improving, they're starting to buy in, they're still playing hard, the commitment to each other, all of these things, they're starting to get it. I wish Kobe Clark would have been part of the progress. I wish Jabari Sibley would have a bigger part of the process. I wish TJ Berger, I wish Malcolm Wilson, the t- guys who are going to be counting on to perform next season, I wish they had a bigger role on the court during the games, during this period of upswing when georgetown beat providence and beat creighton and played well against the uh, villanova wildcats i wish those guys were a part of it but hey you know what it's part of a winning culture it's part of doing all those things and it's showing the recruits coming in for next year the jordan riley's the aminu muhammad's the ryan Matambos, the jordan bigginsley the tj beards that you know what hey This is something that you guys are going to be riding that uh, wave of momentum on and taking it to the next level. I thought all of the things were happening. I thought all of the things were going well. Not saying that going into Tuesday, I thought that they were going to beat Creighton. I thought that uh, Creighton was going to win this game. I thought it would be competitive. I thought it would be a close game. But I was not ready to all of a sudden, jump back off the bandwagon and jump back onto the Patrick Ewing can't do this, the Georgetown program's going this and going negative, negative, negative. I wasn't going to do that if they would have uh, lost this game to Creighton on Tuesday. Not at all. But the way they lost the game to Creighton on Tuesday, flimity floopity flips, man. What the fuck kind of performance was that? That was the most embarrassing performance I don't know. There's been a lot of them. Well, not a lot of them, but there there, there have been some ass whoopings that the uh, Georgetown basketball team under Patrick Ewing has has, uh, been the recipient of. But that performance against Creighton on Tuesday, just in terms of effort, in terms of focus, that, that was one of the most, if not the most, embarrassing performance in the Patrick Ewing era because really... Creighton didn't play all that better either. Creighton probably came in with their deep D plus game. D plus at the very best. At the very best. If you're the biggest Creighton fan, that performance they gave against Georgetown on Tuesday had to range anywhere between, if we're on a scale of 100, anywhere between 63 and 67%. Which is a which is a which is a D. And they still won the game going away. Easily. That performance by Georgetown was the most embarrassing, pathetic, unacceptable, inexcusable performance by everybody involved associated with Georgetown basketball. From the coaches all the way down to the trainers, with the players in the middle. That was embarrassing. You had friends and family watching that game, man. And that's the best you put up? That's the best kind of effort that you could give? That's the best kind of focus that you could bring to the table? That was, that was humiliating. Lost 63 to 48 in a game that Georgetown played with no effort. No pride, no focus, no dignity, no commitment to each other, no respect for the game of basketball, no respect for each other, no respect for your family, no respect to anybody who's ever bounced a basketball before. That was fucking embarrassing. That was humiliating. You keep giving us performances like that, damn right you ain't going to be paid extra type of money. Those motherfuckers didn't even deserve getting get scholarship after the way they played on Tuesday night. Lowest point total under Ewing Georgetown shot 28% committed 24 uh, turnovers only made 15 uh, 16 field goals they were 7 of 27 from the field 9 of 31 from the 3 point line 7 of 27 from 2 point range 9 of 31 from 3 point range let me ask you guys something how in the fuck are you guys gonna take thirty-one three-point shots when you guys can't even make two-point shots? Shotters, a starter shot, fifteen of fifty from the field. Again, the team had more turnovers than field goals. It was embarrassing. You you got to a point watching that game that you don't you, you couldn't even get angry. It was just like, wow, this is just it. It, it almost became laughable. It, it became funny. It became Washington general like generals like hilarious. It's like, are these guys doing this just to make us laugh? I mean, are these guys like in, in Space Jam where the Martians came in and took away all their powers from the NBA stars and they, this is the way they played? This wasn't. This was. I had no idea they were going to have this type of performance. Was it due to fatigue? A uh, fatigue in their performance. How much did that play into it? Okay, Georgetown played two games in the last three games. They played three games in the last six games, all against ranked opponents. Four games in 11 games since they returned from COVID hiatus. Before that, three weeks off. I mean, maybe? Possibly? But, man, the, the, the effort wasn't there. I, I just, the, the, the emotional effort wasn't there. Nobody was getting mad. Nobody looked like they were getting frustrated just nothing it was just uh, just a resonance of okay we're gonna get we're we're getting our ass kicked we're getting embarrassed we look like shit we're on national television doing this and we don't care screw it fuck it oh well I mean I wanted to see I mean if, if I don't know I don't know if Jamarco Pickett or Javon Blair I don't know. Where's the leadership? I mean, I wouldn't have been unhappy. Now, those guys didn't play well, especially Javon. But if there was someone in that locker room at halftime that would have started a brawl, and look, they were still in the game. It, it wasn't Georgetown. I mean, for the opening moments and a little bit into the first half, I mean, they were still within shouting distance. So it wasn't like a complete, you know, the the Creighton started off with a 17-0 run to start the game and they just never looked back. I mean, because Creighton played so poorly that Georgetown was still within some type of shouting distance, even though the effort they were giving, it never led you to believe that they were going to win the game. It was just a matter of, okay, when is Creighton going to wake up a little bit because it looks like Georgetown is just saying, fuck it. So when is Creighton going to just take it out of neutral Maybe put it in the second gear, not even first, and they'll go ahead and win by uh, 20, or win by 25. It was it was alarmingly pitiful the way that they played. Just terrible. And as I mentioned before, they played two games in three days, three games in six days, four games in 11 days. Unless, unless after all of those games, or unless. After the Creighton game, that Georgetown had to walk from Omaha, Nebraska, back to Washington, D.C. in a snowstorm and a blizzard without wearing shoes and tank tops while carrying a piano and a gorilla on their back. Other than that, I, I can't equate that type of performance just based on fatigue. Fatigue. I just can't. Not that bad. Not that bad at all. And again, just a lack of caring. Just the lack of someone at halftime coming in and just going off, yelling, throwing things, kicking th- things, threatening people. Do so- Who is this guy? Who is that guy on that team to walk in that locker room and say, fellas, what the fuck is going on with you guys? That was fucking embarrassing. We can't give a better performance than that? We can't give better effort than that? What the fuck the matter with you guys? Where was the guy, I I wouldn't have cared if Blair or Pickett, the two seniors, I wouldn't care they were like, you know what guys, fuck this bullshit. My fucking team, I'm going one on five. I'm going to do everything I fucking can. And then after the game, I'm going to figure out who really didn't give a fuck and I'm going to fight all of them. And if all of them have to whip my ass, fuck it, I don't give a damn. At least you'll get blood on your Nikes. My blood will be on your Nikes, so fuck it. I don't know. Maybe I got some. Maybe I'm asymptomatic to COVID, and then maybe I'll give you guys that. I don't give a fuck. But if we don't start playing with more effort or energy, regardless of what the score is, we're going to be fighting. Fists are going to be slinging once this game is over. It was just none of that. Just like, oh well, we're getting our ass kicked. We're looking like shit. You oh, know, well, let's, uh, moving on. Our players of the future: T.J. Berger, he played three minutes. Jabari Sibley played nine minutes. Kobe Plart. Kobe Clark played three minutes. Timothy Egoefe played four minutes. Malcolm Wilson played four minutes. Again, I, I was... In the second half, when they were as bad as they could be, it's like, damn, coach. So, I mean, you're just going to just... You're just going to write it out with these guys, huh? no matter how bad it gets, no matter how poorly they play, huh? I mean, could you at least... At least maybe this could be a recru- recruiting tool... For really good players, that no matter how bad you're playing, that if you play for Georgetown and Patrick Ewing, you'll never be taken out, or guys who stick around for four years when you're seniors, it doesn't matter how bad you guys are playing, you will never be taken out of the game, no matter how poorly you're shooting, no matter how many turnovers you make, no matter no, no, how many instances of lack of leadership that you are uh, showing us, no matter any of those things on the negative side, you will not come out of the game, regardless I was thinking to myself, "Damn, I wonder if this league grows to like twenty to twenty-five with three to f- two to three minutes left in the game, is Ewing going to still keep Jamarco Pickett and um, Javon Blair in the game?" I'm just, I'm just wondering because it was like, "What, what, what would be the harm right now?" This is the perfect game. The starters look like shit. Looks like they don't give a fuck. Nothing's going right. They're playing horribly. They're playing with a loser attitude. They're playing with a defeated attitude. What what is the point of keeping them in there? There has been no sign. Zero. Zero from the opening tip till now. I'm speaking this is what I was saying in the second half. This is what I was thinking in the second half. With about with about 11 12 minutes left to go in the game. This is what I was thinking. There there's, there's no sign that Georgetown's going to turn this around. There's no sign that they're going to wake up. There's no sign they're going to start caring. There's no sign that they're going to show any type of pride or any type of moxie or any type of character to dig deep and overcome, I don't know, the mental fog that they're in, this lack of not wanting to, you know, the, the, the overwhelming feeling that they have no desire to be there. They don't want to play in this game. They don't want to be doing this. They don't want to be playing this game. That's what it looked like. It looked like a bunch of guys who just didn't want to be there. So when are we going to take those guys, put them on the bench, and I dare any of those motherfuckers that have an attitude after a performance like that to be benched. I dare any of those fucking guys. I dare Jamarco or Javon or Chunier or Dante Harris or any of those guys sitting on a fucking bench when they were playing like they were playing to sit there with an attitude or to sit there with a mean face or to sit there in bewilderment on why you're not playing. I dare those guys. Perfect time to get T.J. Berger some minutes. Perfect time to get Kobe Clark some minutes. Perfect time to get Jabari Sibley some minutes. Perfect time to get Colin Holloway some minutes. Who gives a fuck if you lose by 15 or 30? Who cares? A loss is a loss. You ain't making the NCAA tournament. You ain't making the NIT tournament. You ain't making the CBI tournament. Who cares how much you lose by? Let's see T.J. Berger getting into the game and Jabari and Kobe. Those guys eventually got into the game, but the way Georgetown played, the way the game was so out of reach based on their performance and effort, you could only give TJ three minutes. You could only give Jabari nine minutes. You could only give Kobe Clark uh, three minutes. You could only give Colin Holloway garbage time. Garbage time for Georgetown started about four minutes into the game. Despite the score, you couldn't have given those guys any type of minutes? When Chudier reverted back to being Chudier, Chudier... Back to the guy who had no fucking idea what he was doing on offense. Jacking up ill-advised shots. Ridiculous shots. Turning the ball over. Javon not playing any defense. Jamargo getting bullied inside. Cutis, no type of resistance at the rim. No type of perimeter defense at all. Judas, when you get the ball in the post and there's four guys around you, pass the fucking ball out. You don't have to go, you don't have to try to score when you're quadruple team. Pass the fucking ball out. Yeah, I know Chudier's going to throw up a brick from the three-point line. Yeah, I know Jamarco's going to try to make a one-on-one move and not finish it the rim or go for a charge. Yeah, I know Jabon is going to. Well, he'll hit a three-point shot if need be. Yeah, I know Dante Harris is either going to miss the shot or try to swing the ball to somebody else. But Jesus fucking A Christ. Throw out the fuck. You're not Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You're not Akeem Olajuwon. You're not Bill Russell. Well, Bill Russell couldn't score. You're not Will Chamberlain. You're not Bill Russell. How about this? You're not Patrick Ewing. Pass the fucking ball out from the guy who only has one move in terms of dominant right. He has no counter move. He has no Kevin McHale up and under. He has no moves going to the left. um, uh, Cutis is going to get the ball. He's going to gather himself, power dribble to the right, jump hook. That's what he does. That's what he does. He's improved. He's getting better, but he's still learning the game. He's still thinking the game. It still doesn't come natural to him that when he gets the ball to go ahead and make a counter move or to go ahead and do a different type of move. He doesn't have the athleticism to catch and finish. When Cutis get the ball, catch, hold, think, move. Catch, hold, gather, think, gather, shoot. That's what he does. And he does that with the right hand. Jesus fucking A Christ, man. You make Kevin McHale, when you get the ball in the post, look like look like fucking Magic fucking Johnson. Pass the fucking ball. So, I I, I, don't, know. I don't know. It was just a, uh, it was just a, I don't even know. I, 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 I know I'm sounding like I'm angry, but it was, I was, it was so horrendous that it was like, yeah, this is going to be, I'm only going to watch this game once. Normally, I like to watch Georgetown. The Georgetown game at least twice. It was only like I'm only gonna, I don't even need to rewatch this game. Is that, it's, what, what am I going to learn? What am I going to learn from this game? I, I, I can't even get mad when when you play so poorly. that like, you can't even get mad. It's just like wow. Okay, hmm. off day for those guys. So they're going to play Butler this Saturday. Can they play better? Will they play better? Hell. Can they play? I don't I don't know what it would look like if they played even worse. That would be scary. But I know one thing, if they did play worse, I know that Jamarco and Javon would still be out there, would still be out there on the court. Butler could go up 30 to nothing. 40. <laughs> Georgetown could be going into halftime, losing 42 to 6. We know one thing. Javon and Jamarco are gonna be out there. And we know that Jabari, Kobe, and TJ are going to be sitting on the bench. Hmm. That's my one thing with Patrick Ewing as the coach. I think he can coach. I, I really do. I think he can coach. And, you know, folks up there talking about, well, he, you know, he needed to counter and he needed to do this. What are you going to counter with? What could he have countered? There, there was no offensive set. There was no defensive rotation. There was nothing that he could have gone to because the guys weren't playing hard and let's go into the bench and putting in some guys who look like they want to play. But if you go ahead and do that, are they experienced enough to even want to go ahead and do that, switch defenses and counter this move and counter that move and this, that and the other, and, you know, scrap the offense, scrap the horns offense and go to pick and roll and all this other kind of nonsense. Then the person who's up there criticizing the Georgetown Hoyas, I mean, these guys aren't NBA players. I mean, you still got a young squad who didn't practice, who didn't have the opportunity to work because of COVID, and they came in late and they just got uh, quarantined for a couple of weeks. That means they didn't play. I mean, damn, man, you're up here, you're up here thinking that these guys are pros and they're playing 82 games a year. I mean, you know, this team, hey man, they gotta start learning the basics. How long did it take these guys just to understand what Ewing was talking about on the basics of an offense offensive the defensive philosophy? And you're up there talking about we need to start doing this like these guys have been, you know, like like these guys are the age of the Wisconsin Badgers players? Come on, man. Come on. Come on. Stop with the nonsense. So I'm, I'm not giving up on these guys. I'll never give up on these guys. It's like when your child does something really stupid or your child does something really dumb. It's not... You know, you're not going to say, "Well, you're no longer my son. I hate you. Get out of my house. I don't love you anymore." Yeah, you still love him. and you're still going to care for him. It's just at that particular moment, you're just not very happy. I'm disappointed in you. I still love you. I'm just disappointed in you right now. Get the fuck out of my face until I can, uh, you know, kind of calm down a little bit. You know, just 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 leave me alone before I, uh, you know, tell you what your punishment is going to be. But as of this moment, I just don't like you right now. Go away. Love you. Don't like you. So that's where, I'm, that's where I'm at with the Georgetown Hoyas right now. I still love those guys. I still love Javon, and Jamarco, and Chudier, and Cutis, and Dante, and Don Carey, and TJ, and Jabari, and Kobe, and Tim, and Malcolm, and, and, and Mirasan's uh, other son, and and the other walk ons Love those guys. Coach Orr, and Ewing, and, and those guys. Coach Kirby. Love those guys. Love those guys. Not giving up on my team. Not going to throw away my team. Not going to uh, abandon my team. It's just I don't want to see you guys until Saturday. That's all. <laughs> and let's see what we can do about playing better. And I I, I think that they'll play better. Now whether they're gonna win a lot win or not, I don't know. But I, I, I guarantee you well, death and taxes are the only thing that can that are guaranteed. But I can strongly I, I strongly feel that Georgetown is going to give a much, much, much better effort on Saturday. Much better effort. I don't know if they're going to be able to shoot better. I don't know if the decision-making is going to be any better. I don't know all of those things. But after that game against uh, Creighton on Tuesday, uh, I think, yeah, I think that the effort level, the pride level will be that much harder. And, hey, man, you know, go Hoyas. Go Hoyas, go Hoyas, despite what you guys put me through, which is a lot worse for you than it was for me, but for the fact that I couldn't get those two hours back on Tuesday and I mischopped on the Food Food Network channel, despite all of the things ruining my uh, Tuesday afternoon or Tuesday evening, I still love you guys. I'm still rooting for you guys. Georgetown fam forever, baby. Let's go Hoyas. Let's go Hoyas. those worlds in sports i'm your host wonder wallace so glad that you could be with us the final segment of the podcast saving the best for last as you know with black history month being this month that i'm uh dedicating a segment of my podcast to a historical figure i guess uh, i don't know historical but you know folks like uh I've already mentioned Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion, and the importance of his fight against James Jeffries, Jim Jeffries, on July 4th, 1910, in Reno, Nevada, which was called the Fight of the Century. All We already talked about Joe Lewis, the uh, contributions that he made to make this world and this country better than it was when he first got here. And I'm going to sway away from athletes this podcast because a couple of days ago the great Mary Wilson passed away earlier this month Danny Ray James Brown's MC, and now the man who sings try me Papa's got a brand new bag please please here he is the one and only James Brown He, uh, he died um So he was with the James Brown Show review for decades. He passed away. Cicely Tyson, a pioneer in her own right, passed away uh, this year. And now, coming into uh, this podcast, the great Mary Wilson passed away. And uh, so I'm going to just be celebrating Black History Month in terms of talking about uh, the greatness of folks from my community uh, a little bit different than. Me going the athlete's route for this one. Just taking a look here. I also want to be doing this. Taking a look at the Otis Redding concert tour. What he was doing back in the day. February 4th, 1962. He was at Club 15 in Macon, Georgia. Then moved on February 10th and 11th, 1962. Davidson College, Davidson College Gym. Over in Davidson, North Carolina. He was headlined with the Olympics. Shirley and Lee. Johnny Jenkins and the Fabulous Pine Toppers. He was part of that group, Otis. Johnny Jenkins and the Fabulous Pine Toppers. This was, I believe, before he came to Stax and dropped These Arms of Mine, which got him on the road to the superstardom and being one of the greatest, if not the greatest artists of, um, I don't know, the last 60, 70 years. So he wasn't on the road at this time in 1963 and 64. In 1963, Otis played at the Royal Peacock in Atlanta, On January 19th, before going off the road until July, then in 1964, he played at the Old Armory in Franklin, Virginia on February 1st. I looked up, I googled Earth, Franklin, Virginia. Man, that's in the middle of nowhere. Franklin, Virginia in 1964? Jeez. Otis Redding and the Rocking Champs. How in the world did those guys get out of Franklin, Virginia in 1964 without... The KKK or some folks chasing after those guys. Interesting. It was casual dress. Tickets to see Otis Redding was a dollar twenty-five per person. So if you wanted to go to the old Armory down in Franklin, Virginia, on February first, back in 1964, to see Otis Redding and the Rocking Champs, just dressed casually, and tickets were a dollar twenty-five. Damn. 1965, February 6th and 7th, he was at the Island Club in Miami, two shows each day. 1966, February 5th, he was at Clemson University in Clemson, South Carolina. February 9th, 1966, at the City Auditorium in Atlanta. Then February 10th, he was at the Royal Theater in Baltimore. Today? Today? 1966, he was down in Montgomery, Alabama, and then tomorrow... February 12th, he was at the Armory in Spartansburg, South Carolina. Must have been doing the Chitlin Circuit down there. 1967, February 3rd, he was at the Civic Coliseum in Knoxville, Tennessee. He was on the same bill at the Marvelettes. Aaron Neville, Here it like it is. James and Bobby Purphy, I'm your puppet. The original Drifters, Under the Boardwalk. in Lorraine Ellison, I have no idea what she's saying. But the show started at 8.30 and tickets were to see the Marvelettes. Now the heat wave burning in my heart. Can't keep on crying. Is that Martha the Van Dals? I don't know. But the Marvelettes, Aaron Neville, James and Bobby Purify and the original Drifters the, and Otis Redding at the headliner. The show started at 8.30. The tickets were only two fifty, three dollars $3.00 and three fifty. dollars Damn! <laughs> to see those idols. To see those legends. February 7th. He was at the Sam Sushi Club in Houston, Texas. Two shows, seven and ten. The oldest Reading Orchestra in review. One night only tickets for $4 in advance. Could you imagine this shit? Then, tonight, 1967, he would have been performing at the uh, Apollo down in New York City. Percy Sledge, um, Arthur Connolly, Percy Sledge saying, Good well, a man loves a woman. Can't keep his mind on nothing else. He changed the world for a good thing he found. Arthur Conley, do you like good music? Yeah, man, that sweet soul the music. The Manhattans. Shit, <laughs> I can't think of a... The Bar Cays. bum, Bar that's a soul finger James Carr the underrated James Carr Um, at the dark end of the street that's where we always meet Betty Harris and Betty Swain at the moment I can't think of any songs sung by them then February 12th Baltimore Maryland baby Civic Center Singing, performing with the Marvellettes, Aaron Neville, Percy Sledge, Bobby and James Purify, Irvin Watson, Lorraine Ellison, The Drifters, and Freddie Scott. Freddie Scott was, um, oh baby, you got what I need, you got everything I need, you like medicine to me, oh baby, so, Biz Marquee took that song, and prices were $2, $2.50, and $3.00. So, I don't know, man. I'm just like wrapped up in so much like Otis Redding stuff that that's my man. So, how about that? So, we're talking about 50-something years to go today. He was down at the Apollo Theater, rocking it. Rocking it, baby. The great, the legendary, the one and only, the fabulous, my hero, musically. And off the stage, Otis Redding. All right. So, for Black History Month, also want to uh, speak about Mary Wilson, Mary Wilson, the founder of the Supremes, according to her longtime friend and publicist, Jay Schwartz, Wilson passed away suddenly Monday morning at her home right here in Henderson, Nevada, which is about, I don't know, about 20, 25 miles down the road from me. I had no idea she lived in uh, the Vegas area. So according to the Clark County coroner, she died from high blood pressure brought on by uh, artery blockages, which is like scary, concerning and all that kind of stuff, because if you have been following this, she made a Facebook, or she made a uh, a post on her YouTube channel just a couple of days before she died. She looked fine. She was sounding fine. I mean, it didn't look anything like, oh my goodness, man, you look like death on a doorstep, on a was She sounded great. People who were talking to her the night before she died, days before she died, said she was sounding great. She was looking forward to doing things down the road and all this kind of stuff. So, it's just damn, man. It's like, you know, one day you go to sleep and the next day you're in heaven, hell or wherever you believe, man. So that's some scary stuff. And yeah, she was 76, but still, I mean, high blood pressure and blocked arteries. They don't know age groups or anything like that. Heart attacks are heart attacks, man. High blood pressure is high blood pressure. And if you have a clogged artery, then guess what? No matter how, who you are, how old you are, anything like that, man, you were in some grave grave danger. So, Miss Wilson is survived by her daughter, son, several grandchildren, a sister, and a brother. Services will be private due to COVID-19 restrictions, and the celebration of Wilson's life will take place later this year. This is what her publicist said. So, man, it's just, you know, she found acclaimed success as a concert singer, and along with her bandmates, Diana Ross, and the beautiful and the sexy, one of the most sexiest of the Motown females right up there with Tammy Terrell and and uh Mary Wells Florence Ballard man mm, yeah, Florence Ballard boy I tell you that was one sexy talented somebody that's you know of all the of all the Supremes Mary Wilson was the most gorgeous and most attractive all all of them were attractive but uh, all, the, the 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 beauty and the attractiveness of a Mary Wilson who I mean, up until 76, she still looked good. She was still an attractive woman. So, you know, back in the day when she was, you know, doing her thing with the Supreme with uh, Miss Ross and Miss Ballard, I mean, she was the prettiest, the most attractive and Florence was the sexiest and Diana Ross was the skinniest. But, I mean, it was just a matter of uh, you know, there were three very attractive females who were very talented and driven and could sing and everything, so You know, in the 1960s, in their heyday, which was about 64 to 67 around that time, the group rivaled the Beatles for commercial success, at one point scoring five consecutive number one singles in the U.S., an achievement that's still unmatched by any female vocal group. So, hey, man, I don't care what you're talking about, Destiny's Child and all these other folks that came after them, um, haven't touched them, haven't touched them. So, yeah, that group was inducted. The Supremes were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988. Unfortunately, Miss Ballard, little Ballard, wasn't there. She died at the age of 32. She had a, she had a tough life. She had a uh, rough life and uh, wasn't made any easier by dealing with Motown and Barry Gordy, who gets a big fuck you in terms of the way that she treated, that, the way that he treated uh, Florence Ballard. And just just wasn't right just wasn't right at all. I mean, she was... I guess if you say, if you watch Dream um, the way that they portrayed... I guess it was just kind of like, uh, you know, a lot of similarities to Motown with, you know, the, the, the uh, Effie and... and uh, Beyonce's character and the other one, there being the Supremes. Uh, Beyonce playing the role of Diana Ross and Jamie Foxx playing the role of... Um, Barry Gordy. And if you watch that movie, you know, the character that Jamie Foxx plays is a complete and utter asshole. Yeah, that was Barry Gordy. Yeah, that was Barry Gordy. Pioneer. All of those things, but, you know, asshole. So, you know, uh, one of the stories I loved most about the Supremes is how they reacted when they had to sing Where Did Our Love Go for the first time. Now, the story was, was that, you know, these were teenage girls and they wanted to Auditioned and they auditioned for Motown and Barry Gordy heard them and said, "Well, I mean, you girls are in high school right now. Wait till you finish high school, then we'll go ahead and we might have a spot for you." So they did that and you know they were you know whatever they could do to get in, you know whether it meant being a gopher, go get some coffee, sing background vocals, whatever. They were going to make their presence known. They were going to be there, you know, and 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 show that they wanted to do this. So finally. Once they graduated high school, Barry Gordy gave them a contract and this, that, and the other, and they went to charm school and and all those type of things. So for the first couple of years that they recorded, they didn't come up with any hits. Meanwhile, Mary Wells is coming out with My Guy and you know, Martha and the Vandellas is coming out with Heat Wave and Dancing in the Streets and... You know, all of these acts are starting to take off. Smoky, uh, Smokey Robinson and the Miracle. So, you know, Hit-Phil, Motown is starting to become hit and this, that, and the other. And, you know, now you have the Supremes who are sitting there with Flo and uh, Diana and Mary Wilson. And they're just not coming up with, with anything. All of the songs that they're coming up with are just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, no-hit singles. So their nicknames were starting to become the no-hit Supremes. So for years they were struggling to get a hit. So Gordy was like, you know what? We're gonna team you with uh, a Dozier, Holland, and Dozier, the main guys. You know Brian and Lamont Dozier and, um, and 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 the So the the main the the, the main group. I mean, along with Smokey and Ashford and Simpson and other folks. I mean, these were the these were the cream of the crop, the fruit of the loom, as you say. Uh, terms of songwriting is concerned. They wrote all the hits for um, the Four Tops and they were just a great one of the Dozier, Holland Dozier were one of the greatest songwriting teams in musical history over the past 50, 60, 70 years. They were were unbelievable. So one of the brothers, uh, Dozier, came up to uh, the group and they were going to record and they said, okay, we're going to go ahead and we're going to, you guys are going to sing the song. It's called, Where Did Our Love Go? So they played it and sang it. And Mary, Diana, and Florence, they they started crying. and They were upset. And Dozier was like, what's, what's going on? What's the matter? And they were like, this song sucks. This sucks. There, there's nothing to it. We want something that's soulful. I mean this is what Mary was like. I I, Miss Wilson was like, I you know, I was the one who, you know, will pop off if something needed to be pop off verbally. And I just looked at him and said, This song sucks. This this is terrible. I mean what is this? Baby, baby, where did our love go? Baby, baby. What what is that? That's nothing (laughs) I mean this is you've got Mary Wells with a hit, you've got Martha Reeves with a hit, you got all these females with the hits. We got all these artists with hits we haven't done anything and you are going to give us this this is supposed to be our big break this is supposed to be something that's we want something that's soulful we want to sing something soulful we don't want to sing baby 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 where did our love go baby baby i mean this is i mean quite she said quite frankly the bullshit and the guys were like hey you know what no nope, it's gonna be a hit it's gonna be a hit sing it it's gonna be a hit this is what brian Docher was say it's gonna be a hit gonna be a hit and diana ross got so upset because he wouldn't back off. He's like, no, nah, this is a hit. This is what you're going to be singing. This, that, and the other. And the girls were like, no, no, no. This is done No. And he was like, yes, 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 yes. So Diana Ross said, well, guess what? I'm going to talk to Barry Gordy about I'm going to talk to Barry about this. So uh, uh, Dozier was like, okay, you are? Okay, well, here's the phone. Go ahead and give him a call. Or should I call him for you? Here's the phone. There you go. Make the call. Go ahead and complain. And, you know, Diana was like, oh, shit. Okay, well. <laughs> That strategy didn't work, so, all right. So they started singing a song. And if you hear the original, go ahead and play the original. Go ahead and play uh Where Did Our Lo- Love Go, the actual recording that launched the Supremes from the no-hit Supremes to the legendary Supremes. Baby, baby, baby. Okay so you hear that right there? Baby, baby, where did I go? Now when they were singing that and it's Holland Dozier Holland, not Dozier Holland Dozier, Eddie Eddie Holland and Lamont Dozier. And Brian, okay. So Holland Dozier Holland. That's the, that that's the uh, that's the songwriting group. Well basically, when they were singing that, they were singing that under protest. Right, they were singing that. It, 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 word has it, uh, they were they were singing like like baby, baby, like they were singing like in a "fuck you" type of dude. Like you know, we, we don't want to do this. We're doing this under pressure, so we're singing with an attitude in terms of defiance. Like we're doing this, but we really don't want to do this. And you're going to hear this in the in the uh, the way that it comes out, right? So the engineer and because Diana Ross had the dour look on her face and. You know, the girls have this, you know, I hate you, you suck type of look on their face. And the engineer kinda goes to uh Dozier or goes to a uh, Holland, and Holland is like, Do you want me to stop this? Because I mean the way they're singing and the you know, there's are just bullshit in here. Do you want me to go ahead and stop this? And then the guy's like, Nope, let him keep on going. Let him keep on going. So after they finish the song, Diana looks at you know uh Holland and goes is that what you want? And Lamont, uh, in, uh, Holland goes, perfect. Absolutely perfect. So that's the, you never know. You never know. The, the, the song that launched the Supremes, baby, baby, where did I go? It was a situation where it was up to them. There ain't no fucking way they would have been singing that bullshit. Crying, protesting, doing everything they can. Negative attitude, bad attitude, and it came out perfectly, and it launched them into superstars. It was a situation where when that song came out, they were on a, you know, they were on tour, and they were the, you know, they were the the early act. They were the middle-of-the-pack type of act, you know. It was like, yeah, here's the Supremes, and get off, and let's get to the real stars of the show. When that song came out, they moved from the beginning, middle-of-the-pack, straight from the closing, straight to the closing act to the main act and that uh that started their uh that started their ascent to uh being legends in the music business so that's my favorite supreme story right there the beginning of where did our love go it was funny because sugar pie honey bunch which was sung by the um, four tops as soon as the song was over another song written by Holland Dozier holland that levi stubbs was like man this song sucks Sugar Pie Honey Bunch? What the fuck is that? These lyrics are a joke. You know, and Holland was like, no, we're good. We're good. Turned out to be the biggest song by the Four Tops. The first uh, hit for the Temptations. You got a smile so bright. You could have been a candle. I'm holding you so tight. You could have been a handle. The way you swept me off my feet. You know, you could have been a broom. The way you smell so sweet, you could have been the perfect... So, Eddie Williams, who was the leader of the group, looked at these lyrics and was like, what the fuck is this? You got a smile so bright, you could have been a candle. What? I'm holding you so tight, you could have been a handle. What the the fuck is this? But, (laughs) what what the hell is this bullshit, right? But, turned out to be pretty good. So, the moral of the story is, if you're a singer... Trust your songwriters, <laughs> they know what they're doing, especially if they're legends like uh Holland Dozier Holland. So, there you go. So, you know, peace and love to uh Mary Wilson. She became a best selling author, a motivational speaker, a businesswoman, a U.S. cultural ambassador, a New York Times best selling author in 1986. The debut of her autobiography, Dream Girl My Life as a Supreme, bestseller. She was also instrumental in passing the Music Modernization Act, the MMA Act, in 2018. It's aimed to modernize copyright release issues for new music and audio recordings in the face of new technology like digital streaming, which did not protect music recorded before February 15, 1972. In 2001, she received an associate degree in art from New York University the result of five years studying between touring commitments I mean here's a woman who had it all financially and everything all the things that she wanted what did she need a degree for but she went ahead and did that Diana Ross tweeted my condolences to you Mary's family I have so many wonderful memories of our time together the Supremes will live on in our hearts yeah mm. alright all right. I don't think she's going to be invited to the funeral. Those two had grown apart for uh, for a while now. So it's like, you know. I think of that friend that was your best friend 30, 40 years ago. You know, and you just found out that they died. It's like, yeah, you know. Sucks. Tough. You know, always be my best friend. Always have those memories. But, you know, I moved on in life. He's moved on. She's moved on in life. So, you know whatever i think that was uh Diana Ross and Mary Wilson's relationship at the end it's like yeah you know we we did some great things legendary things unbelievable things things that will live on forever but you know she went her way i went my way we did fine without each other i got what i wanted she got what she wanted whatever <laughs> i mean whatever moving on so you know, um, rest in peace to the great to the wonderful Mary Wilson. My Black History Month special dedication for this podcast. All right, I'm out of here. I'm going to end this podcast with my favorite supreme song. One of my favorite songs that I love to sing the most. Most, I can sing the version by the Isley Brothers. I can sing the version by Stevie Wonder. But mostly, I love singing this Uh, version of I Hear a Symphony uh, from the Supremes. I hear a symphony each time you speak to me I hear a tenderness so deep of love now baby baby as you stand holding me whispering how much you care a thousand violins fill the air now baby baby don't let this moment in. Come on, y'all. Keep standing close to me. A little bit louder. Who's so close to me? Rainer, 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 rainer. Okay, let me end this before before I uh, before I call someone to do something violent. Um, Yeah, so I want to thank you very much for the uh, listen, download, subscribe, rate, review. Show me some love anywhere Apple Podcast, anywhere you listen to podcasts are available. I hope that I got that right. Miss Wilson, RIP, I hope you and Flo are in heaven right now. I wonder if y'all are bad-mouthed and Diana. Like, that bitch is still down there? We're still up here? Whatever. But, um, you, know, but uh, you know, rest in peace to the beautiful, wonderful, talented, cultural icon, ambassador, legend, pioneer, the great, the one and only Mary Wilson. Ladies? You've given me a true love And every day I thank you, love For feeling that's so new So inviting, so exciting